Consequence Podcast Network. You guys, I want a free association. What it is that you think when you hear this. Yeah. yeah. Majesty. Well, I only listen to it. I spent all my time listening to the West Wing Weekly podcast, and they have talked about one of the hosts, like, and his sister as younger people, like, sliding around in their socks to this <laughs> song. <laughs> so my mental image of is of Rishikesh Hirway sliding in his socks. I just always song. see Rob Lowe holding his chin thoughtfully. Mm. Um, yeah. Statesmanship. Statesmanship, patriotism. Okay, what about blowing flags? Hold on, here we go. Wait, wait. Oh no. The West Wing. Um, when you think about those black and white photos that are in it, which one is your favorite? I always think of Donna. He's not holding his chin. What's he? Who am I thinking of? Is it just Bartlett? No, Bartlett is by the. It's the Kennedy thing. Yeah, where it's you just see his back. I swear I see somebody like holding that. his chin. Who's holding his chin thoughtfully? Well, John Spencer has glasses on. Is it John Spencer with glasses Maybe. on? Maybe. Richard Schiff is gesturing. Bradley Whitford has his backpack. Uh-huh. My favorite is Richard Schiff gesturing, <laughs> but because it, it's like obviously sort of color corrected to look like a really fancy black and white photo. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite. Well, the ones I always go to are the that pop into my mind's eye are Bradley Whitford with the backpack, mm-hmm. just looking earnest, and and uh, Elson Janney. Those are the two that just come to mind. And, and the, you guys, the other ones you've said, I was like, oh, yeah, they're there. Those are the, mm. the ones that come mm-hmm. to mind for me. Well, yeah. for me, I guess I always think of the Martin Sheen Kennedy portrait one because that's the one where it's like that they were going for something specific. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, it was either a still from the show that they converted yeah. to black and white or something like a photo they obviously took. Isn't Stalker Channing only in the credits when she's in the episode? I think so. I guess so, yeah. I feel like I, that one I like. It's like, oh, she's going to be in there. It's like a little, <laughs> yeah. a little yeah. preview of when yeah. she's coming. Why? Welcome to TV Party, a Consequence Podcast Network party. Does that work? Sure. <laughs> Let's say yes. Okay. I'm Allison Shoemaker. I'm Clint Worthington. And we have two of our most favorite contributors here with us this week. Ladies, tell them who you are. I'm Caroline Zeta. And this is Kate Kulzik. And we are here to kick off a new format that I came up with, and you can tell I came up with it because <laughs> I gave it the name, yeah. which may, which meant that the episode we're talking about today had to be the first episode we talked about because the name comes from it. Yeah. As a person who managed to turn each and every one of her designated Survivor reviews into a document of what exactly they ripped off from the West Wing that week, we are doing our first You Get Hoins, <laughs> a dissection of ambitious hours of television, starting with two cathedrals, the season two finale of The West Wing. Before we get to that, though, we're going to talk about the week in TV. Everybody mm-hmm. cool with that? Yeah. I suppose. Oh, uh, yeah. We're going to do some news first, but I feel like I want to warn people in advance. We are going to be talking about the season four finale of Jane the Virgin. 
I don't want to sneak up on you, so by the time we get to the week in TV, just be ready to pause and skip ahead if you don't want to know what happened on the season four finale of Jane the Virgin. If you are a Jane watcher and have not seen that episode, absolutely skip it. For sure. Mm-hmm. Major's and Idella alert. Kate, am I wrong? Skip the spoiler. Don't yeah. skip the yeah. episode. Yeah, don't skip the episode. See, yeah, yeah. You will just see the timestamp. Go to the timestamp where we're talking about the West Wing. By that point, I will probably be crying because my feelings about the West Wing are very strong. Also, <laughs> Designated Survivor is absolutely ripping off the West Wing. <laughs> All the time. There was an episode, in fact, where they wanted to name a turtle after the president. And the communications director was really pissed about it. And it was so obviously like a beat by beat version of the episode where Bartlett has to be photographed with a goat for Heifer's yeah, International, international yeah. um, that I was really, really mad the entire time. <laughs> uh, so to the guy at the AV Club who comments, please stop talking about the West Wing. We know how much you love it. I, I say, you. please stop watching Designated Survivor, which is just ripping off the West Wing. Yeah. And but it's got it. Kiefer. So the week in television. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Harry Anderson died. He made bow ties cool in the 80s. Night Court. Harry the Hat. I also liked Night Court. I was mm. a big fan of the 30 Rec episode called yes. the yes. one with the cast that from Night Court. That's a good one. He was really game for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he was just a, I only really know him from Night Court and Night Court adjacent things. But uh, yeah, I always liked him as a yeah. comedic performer. Either of you big Cheers fans or Night Court fans? Unfortunately not. <gasps> What? I mean, not. I'm not not. <laughs> I've never seen Night Court, and I've seen, you know, a handful of episodes of Cheers, but I'm yeah. not like a Cheers. I was just like fan. all right thinking, you know, TV fans are, but you just haven't seen them. So right, like, right, right. I'm not yeah, anti yeah. Cheers. <laughs> you will appreciate every episode of Cheers I've seen. I've enjoyed, but yeah. I have not like delved into it's the just Cheers. Like yeah, one of the all time best. The Cheers comedies. mythos. Yeah. 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 It's just out there waiting for you. It's yeah. like yeah. it's like a You'll... gift that the past is giving you that you yeah. haven't opened. I think it's all on Netflix. Yeah, something like that. When you get to it, you'll love it. Yes. Uh, I yeah. feel like this is also another good point because one of the things I wanted to talk about specifically because uh, Caroline is here is Grey's Anatomy related, but we also mm. saw the series finale of Scandal this week. Mm-hmm. Did anybody watch? I'm looking at Caroline. Mm. Nope, I don't watch Scandal. No. But I considered watching it because <laughs> <laughs> it was the ending. I don't know. I, I tried to watch bits of Scandal. It's and this will kind of tie into my like pick of the week too. But like I, I think the thing I like about Grey's Anatomy and the West Wing is that they're very like fundamentally good people. And mm-hmm. Scandal is like they're all evil, and I'm down with that. But it's not like speaking to my heart in the way that Grey's does. Yeah, mm-hmm. at the at the best, they're chaotic neutral. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's that's about the best you can say. There's, yeah, there's too so. much. There's too much torture for it to be chaotic neutral. In my some opinion. of them. Yeah. Some of them I'm are. Saying, the show isn't chaotic neutral. I'm yeah, saying some the of the characters are chaotic. Some neutral. of the characters. I'm just no. I mean, I mean the characters doing the torturing. There's there's a lot of characters who torture people. There are a lot of <laughs> characters who torture yeah. people. I did not watch the episode, but I did. See because uh, I'm seasons and seasons behind with Scandal, but I did see how it ended, and I thought that was fabulous. So, did you guys watch? Or? I know how it ended. I did not watch. I'm also seasons and seasons behind on Scandal. So th- the reason that I bring up Shondaland is because Grey's Anatomy was renewed for a fifth. 15th season. <laughs> Grey's Anatomy is almost old enough to drive. Grey's Anatomy is like. And then get into a terrible car accident. It, that's and so everyone great. almost dies, and then there's a musical. That's so episode. great. 
which I would watch. I mean, that literally happened, yeah, so yeah, you can everyone, watch it. Everyone no, mourns I mean, next to a separate hospital yes. beds as the camera pans over them and the yeah. sad song plays. I had to yeah. sort of revisit that episode this week because um, I showed up on the Losers Club, my first uh, Consequence Podcast Network show, which I am now mm. sort of an adjacent member because I'm doing mm. this John instead, and I'm into that. Mm-hmm. But um, we were talking about the Carrie episode of Riverdale, which also aired this week. And so I was sort of, I gave them a brief history of musical episodes on television. Mm-hmm. Um, your Buffy's, your Scrubs, your mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy's, mm-hmm. um, your it's, Magicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Grey's musical is not a great episode, but there are certain songs from it that I will just regularly go and watch on YouTube because I do think that they're pretty great. Mainly the the Shiler, Shiler, Shiler. Thank, yeah, yeah. Mm. I really like hers, and I think her voice is very pretty, and I, I like her number. Her voice and I will pretty. always listen to Sarah Ramirez. So, yeah. like, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. There you go. Yep. Hell yeah. Always and forever. Yeah. I remember her singing Find Your Grail on the Tonys so oh, vividly. So good. <laughs> Burned on the so back good. of my eyes. Same, same. That um, was a good year. It was I, that, and it was Dirty Rotten Scoundrels yeah. and Light in the Piazza. Yeah. Do All TV you want to watch content? the Tony Awards this year? Uh, speaking of, that's not news I put in here, but did y'all see who's hosting the Tonys this year? No, yes, what? I know Josh you're Groban. excited. Oh, of Sarah Bareilles. Josh Groban and Sarah Bareilles. It is a huge upgrade from Kevin Spacey. Huge. <laughs> oh, yeah. Huge. Oh, my God. It's not what I had that. hoped, which was Rachel Bloom, but hopefully they'll bring back oh. Rachel Bloom to do exactly what she did last year, which is wear more and more tiny top hats and interview people backstage. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was the best part of the show. Amazing. But I think it's actually really yeah. inspired. Yeah. I think they'll be Agreed. great. They're no. very charming, self-effacing people who have actually been on Broadway and um, right. care. Yeah, know? I didn't expect that to be another unanticipated benefit of Kevin Spacey being canceled. I don't have to ever hear his terrible Johnny Carson impression. I don't yeah. have to hear him doing Sinatra. I'm very happy about I that. I will never forgive him for bringing Robin Wright out as a prop. Don't get me wrong. It uh-huh. is the 175th least troubling thing Kevin Spacey has ever done. Mm-hmm. But having Robin Wright come out as a prop for a House of Cards joke is not great. Yeah. Bob. What else? So Hulu is doing a documentary series about the Fire Festival. <laughs> My Schadenfreude sense is tingling. I'm very uh, excited. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a strange week for that to happen because there's currently quite the to-do happening online about the cancellation of Universal FanCon, mm-hmm. oh. um, which if any of you listening are people who are adversely affected by this cancellation, I'm super sorry. It really sucks. Mm. Um, canceling like a week out. Anyway, oh, wow. uh, at least they're not stranded on an island <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> with no food or water or all kinds of shit. At some, at some point, Danny Boyle is going to make a great movie out of this, though. Oh, uh, would 100% would watch. Yeah. I finally started catching up with Trust this week, and like, mm-hmm. I love Danny Boyle. And uh, Allison Mack and her sex cult. That was yeah, a thing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. pretty nuts. Crazy. So, Kate, which one? Kate, it was you who hadn't heard this? No, Caroline hadn't heard this? Who hadn't I heard hadn't, this? no, I had heard of it a long time ago, and I didn't. I, I hadn't quite followed the new developments, I think. So, those were surprising and apparently much darker than I had. I, I do think like it is an easy sort of like punchline to make but it sounds like it's actually kind of a horrific oh, yeah. terrible thing serious. so that's yeah. like also very just unsettling well i think it's uh particularly upsetting because i had also thought it was sort of an easy punchline right like i had seen this mm. shit about allison mack and a sex cult and was like god that's weird blah, blah, blah. but you read what's actually going on and it's incredibly upsetting Mm-hmm. So that's I feel like strange. Just in general, cults are easy to joke about, but they actually are like really horrible. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. we should probably, like, not we four in this room, but we as a society should, like, take not them. Yeah, them. should not yeah. joke about them. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had that SNL sketch talking about Wild Wild Country, right, this last week. I don't know if you guys saw that, mm-hmm. where it was it, it was jumping off of that. But if um, uh, Keenan was was there talking about it, he was there for the sex. Um, and so, like, that's where they were, where they were going. There. And I had a little bit of trouble with that. It was like, this is funny. Also, they like drug people and right. like all sorts of yeah. really bad stuff happened. So yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. My my friend Brock Wilbur was one of the people who broke the story in paste last year, and so that was yeah. I think that's when we all started to hear yeah. the things of it, and yeah, just the, the seeing the the dominoes fall a little bit is really interesting. I suppose I'm just glad that people are getting arrested. Yeah, yep. at least like people being being held accountable. Yeah. Yes. Um, I guess speaking of people being held accountable, although we don't really know the situation, yeah. there was another piece of like weird TV personality personality related news this week. Kate assumed that when we were talking about this in our little pre-show chat that we were talking about like a piece of drama on Drag Race that she had somehow missed. Yeah. But Robbie Turner, who was a contestant on season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race, um, tweeted, I think it was last weekend, a lot about having survived Uh, being in a drunk driving related car crash in which his Uber driver was killed Mm -hmm. um, and being grateful for life and all of this stuff. And the stranger, he's a Seattle-based queen. Mm -hmm. Uh, The stranger started digging into it and found basically no record of such an incident anywhere. Uh, And they contacted Uber directly. Uber, who had worked with Robbie Turner as a spokesperson, um, or on a promotion of some kind, uh, had no record of it and had the ability to like reach out directly because they had a working relationship. And then um, Robbie Turner's home bar released a statement saying that he was taking, I'm always very confused about the pronouns to use when a drag queen uses their real name. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll say he about Robbie Turner, the person not performing in drag, mm. um, but if it should be other pronouns please let me know and I'll adjust them mm-hmm. is taking a leave to figure out what's going on yeah. and to like get their mind right. Yeah, Focus um, on health and wellness. Yeah. But it is upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I sincerely hope, I guess that, he, that he wasn't in a car crash yeah. and that his Uber driver was not killed and that he gets help. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a very confusing situation and yeah. very kind of heartbreaking a little bit. Yeah. And I, um, Robbie Turner was not my, you know, number one queen from season eight, mm. but uh, I, I really hope that, that they're doing okay. Yeah. And with that, I guess time to talk about the week in TV. Why not? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's do it. This, actually, I, Kate was slated to go first, but I think mm-hmm. maybe we should have you go last yeah. so that people can skip. That way you can still hear the other episodes. And uh, yeah. So when we get to Kate, that will be, if you don't want to be spoiled on Jane, go ahead and skip ahead. Uh, to the next timestamp. Um, so, Clint, let's have you go first. What is your pick for the week? Sure. Uh, my pick is the most recent episode of Blackish uh, called 53%. Tracy Ellis Ross directed this one. And from what I can tell, it's supposed to be the first of a four episode arc that takes the show in a much more dramatic direction than it usually is. I mean, it's it's the show throughout its run has been really good about weighing those the fun, effervescent sitcom, family sitcom trappings with serious discussions of societal issues and especially race. Um, but here they they really, really leaned on the drama this episode because they're introducing this a plot about Dre and Bo kind of not being happy in their marriage and introducing 
the possibility that maybe they might split up. At least that 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 question is in the cards. And one thing I think this episode really does well, I think there's so many ways it could have fallen flat on its face or taken itself too seriously or mangled those dynamics. But I think they perfectly captured that feeling of being in a relationship for a really long time and knowing each other well enough, the the ways in which major fights start and stop. And especially if you're having major problems with your spouse or your partner, um, the ways in which even those temporary respites of like, oh, you know, you're in the middle of fighting and then you see your child's first steps. And mm-hmm. like, you, you know, they set it up in that episode as like, oh, that's such a wonderful moment. But the following scene, they're right back at it again. And it's very it's it, it nails that passive aggression and it makes for really, really compelling uh, scenes between the two of them. And it's pretty much like a, almost a two hander. I mean, they each get, I mean, uh, Dre especially gets some time with his dunderheaded work colleagues who give him really terrible advice about how to handle the marriage. But um, even with that, just seeing them interact with each other. And I mean, just as a, as a two hander, I feel like Tracy Ellis Ross directs the hell out of it. It ends on a note that says this isn't over. And they are this family that we've been following for, I think four seasons now, maybe undergoing even more seismic changes than when Zoe left to start her spinoff, uh, Grownish. And so I really, really wonder, it's a fascinating start to this to this uh, episode arc, and I really want to see how it turns out, because I'm worried for them, guys. I want them to make it. Um, so yeah. I have like sort of a related topic to mm-hmm. bring up. Um, is anybody watching Roseanne? Nope. No. No. Okay. I turned out after the first two episodes. So I reviewed it for Ebert. And here's like a weird little look behind the curtain. Normally when you're watching screeners, you get, you know, one through five or you'll get the full season or one through three. I, the Americans this year was episodes one, two and three. Legion was one through four. Mm-hmm. Jessica Jones, I think we got through five. Mm-hmm. Um, Trust we got three. Westworld was through five. And then sometimes you get the full season. Um, Handmaids, I think it's through six. Anyway, Roseanne, it was, if memory serves, one, four, and seven. Hmm. Um, Might be one, three, and seven. Um, But it was definitely not sequential. At the time, I thought, well, that's really weird. These just must just be the ones where, like, they didn't have to do ADR or something else. People don't cherry pick episodes because that would be weird and bogus, right? Mm. Only it really does feel like they did. Because the other thing going on with Blackish right now is that Kenya Barris, who is the showrunner, is leaving... Netflix, ABC for Netflix. He's trying to get out of his deal. Yeah, is trying mm. to get out of his deal with ABC to leave for Netflix. And that news broke, I think, three or four days after Roseanne ran an episode in which there is a joke about Blackish and Fresh Off the Boat. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Um, and it's the gist of it is, and I didn't, this is not one of the episodes that was sent to me. Mm. And I uh, was sort of planning on catching up later. I was really bothered by the first episode, was sort of ambivalent on the fourth episode or third, whichever it was. And and then was actually very moved by the seventh episode. So it's it was a very odd review to write. The episode in which they make this dig was definitely not sent to critics. And um, Sonia Soraya, who's been writing about the show really well and speaking about the show from a very interesting perspective, sort of said what I felt, which is that that particular episode felt like kind of a slap in the face. Like it was like they were holding back um, and like they were sort of taking advantage of the way that screeners work yeah. um, because the joke basically was Dan and Roseanne fall asleep on the couch and they wake up and one of them has a line about, Oh, well we slept from wheel to Kimmel. And I think then Dan says, Oh, we mixed all the shows about the black and Asian families. And Roseanne says, they're just like us. You're all caught up. 
and it feels like incredibly disrespectful and mean spirited. And like that writer's room includes Wanda Sykes. Like I don't understand how it is that ABC was willing to let that air when two of the most critically acclaimed, at least in the case of Blackish, the most Mm -hmm. award nomination generating shows. That was what they took a dig at. Right. Does anybody have more? Does anybody have more context to add to that? I don't. Because I'm I'm horrified to hear that. Uh, I thought it was an excellent episode, but I the kneeling right. Well, yeah. There's an episode of 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 Blackish that uh, actually sounds like it was really good. Uh, Mm -hmm. Centered around um, Dre telling Devante like a a night a bedtime story, kind of trying to like get him to calm down, telling the story. Uh, So it's like kind of fable, fairy tale, bedtime story kind of thing. But it was going to incorporate, uh, amongst other things, a discussion of athletes kneeling. And that got pulled out over creative differences. So they're mm-hmm. not going to air it um, between uh, Kenya Barris and ABC. Um, so, And that's theoretically, I would imagine, contributing to a change in the environment over at ABC and him wanting to leave. Mm-hmm. But don't forget that, of course, Tracy Ellis Ross was getting paid significantly less, right, mm-hmm. than, yeah. than uh, Anthony yeah. Anderson and was talking about like stepping back her appearances on the show significantly in the next season if they weren't going to pay her. Mm-hmm. And part of they negotiated something, including her directing this episode. So while I thought it was a very good episode of television, I don't think it was earned at all based on the the established relationship we've seen on the show. And I thought it just kind of came out of nowhere and wasn't earned. I don't mm-hmm. think you get to say in season four of a show, oh, we've had marital problems this whole time. We just never showed you those episodes, which is mm-hmm. basically what they do in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought it was a really well done episode, but I didn't buy I didn't think they earned it from everything else. Um, so, I, so I had significant problems with it. In the context of the rest of the show, mm-hmm. outside of the context of the rest of the show, yeah, as a terrific as bottle individual. episode, and yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, because they've they've argued on the show before, and maybe there's you know the the family dynamic had already changed with a, a lot of changes with Zoe leaving and mm-hmm. and Bo le- like leaving her job to become a stay at home mom, and mm-hmm. I was willing to believe that like in that short period of time, enough major changes happened that like we were starting to see these little things. But mm-hmm. I agree that I mean that level of animus i suppose was a little bit out of nowhere we were talking about this over on um, my tv podcast the televerse and my co-host noel brought up um as parallel mad about you the season that they did that you know led led to some strife in that relationship and questions of you know whether they were going to stick it out um and that that was something that was a season-long thread that eventually when they got there made sense and i think that if they knew they wanted to this this to me felt like a pivot Okay, if we we have to write Tracy Ellis Ross off of the show significantly, mm-hmm. what's the thing we can do? This we can have them get separated or divorced, and that would also then, if we do that, that gives us lots of other great stuff we can work on. Do this awesome, terrific arc at the end of the season. Because yeah. for me, it didn't feel like it's something that was something that had been planned at the Led beginning of to. the season. Uh-huh. You know, um, so we'll see what happens with it. But I hope that that I just have trouble not seeing those strings behind the scene like mm. strings. So and I didn't have that context. I didn't yeah. see mm. it. So that that yeah. had a different perception of the episode for me. Well, I really hope that that somehow mm. Blackish can stay Blackish with mm. everything else that's going on. But, exactly. But let's yeah. definitely get Ross behind the camera more because oh, totally, she, she did a good I, job yeah. and the performances were terrific and yeah. Uh, Caroline, what is <laughs> another your, downer? This is, <laughs> We're all going to be cursing out God in Latin in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, so we'll make it happen. It's that, it's We're that saving kind our of juices episode. for that. Uh, actually, yeah. I, 
while I have not seen this episode, the show that Caroline picked always sort of makes me smile and feel better about mm-hmm. the world. So mm-hmm. hopefully this will be a nice moment. <laughs> pick me up. Caroline, uh, what was your pick for episode of the week? So with my picks for everything this week, I was really in the West Wing mindset. And I've been a little bit behind in my TV watching, but it felt appropriate to highlight a show. I think maybe I've highlighted on here before, but it's an ABC show called For the People that was produced by the Shondaland production company, not actually Shonda Rhimes herself because she's with Netflix now, but it's like feels sort of of a piece with that world. Um, It's a show about lawyers. We get to follow some defense attorneys and some uh, prosecutors in the mother court. Um, And it's like a very earnest, it honestly feels like the earnestness of the West Wing, but not nearly as well written and definitely (laughs) not as subtle. like very unsubtle, in fact. But I think if you're looking for like <laughs> appealingly earnest, unsubtle, yes, appealingly <laughs> unsubtle. Britt Robinson plays the lead. Um, main like it's an ensemble piece, but she's kind of the the Sam Seaborn in the first season of The West yeah. Wing, if you will. I really like the show. It is what it is. Like I said, it's incredibly unsubtle, but it's one of the rare shows that I think is trying to tackle sort of like the big legal, social, ethical, political questions that the West Wing did, in this case through specifically the law. And they did an episode, the one before this most recent one as we're recording, but it's called World's Greatest Judge, and it's about mandatory minimums, like very explicitly. And so we follow the sort of main judge on the show, who's played by Vandy Curtis Hall, who's great. And he, we learn, is a judge questioning the mandatory minimum drug sentencing. In the past, he's sort of sent other people to jail for a long amount of time, for a long amount of times with very small drug possessions. And a case comes before him and he just like questions this entire thing. It's someone who had 57 grams of meth, which we learn is like a post-it size amount, but the uh, mandatory minimum for having anything above 50 grams is 10 years in prison. So this judge is basically forced to sentence someone who circumstantially does not deserve that amount of prison time to 10 years. And it's really the judge grappling with what he wants to do. And does he want to make a stand over that and sort of retire himself from the court, basically, because what he would be doing would be unethical. And it's also a great showcase for Anna DeVere Smith, who's on the show. And that's another West Wing connection, which is why I wanted to pick it. <laughs> I feel and like at this moment, I should say that yeah. Caroline said the words Anna DeVere Smith, and I saw Clint and Kate out of the corner of my <laughs> both smile giddily, which I also did. There are magic because we words. we fucking love Anna DeVere Smith, speaking yeah. of the West Wing. Yeah. Yeah. She's been on For the People since the beginning, but this, I think, is her biggest showcase yet. And she's sort of making the argument that it's better it's about for time you. she got her big break. Yeah, truly. Yeah. What has that lady been doing? <laughs> Uh, she's sort of arguing that it's better to be a good judge in an imperfect system than make this, you know, hard moral stance. It's just, I think it's such an important topic to talk about and a topic Mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't know about. And if it does so unsubtly, like, I almost don't care that a mass ABC audience is learning about this thing that maybe Mm -hmm. they didn't know about. To me, that feels more important than this happening in the most nuanced, you know, Right. way and I think it is a showcase for good performances and I think the show is just doing I don't know the show is fulfilling a gap in my TV watching that I feel like the West Wing also does and I haven't had that lately and so I'm very happy that it's around I hope more people find it and that it gets to have a couple more seasons you know there's also a really great episode of the West Wing about <laughs> mandatory minimums called mandatory minimums um, <laughs> it's near the end of season one <laughs> yeah I mean I, I feel like especially now it's a really good time to find shows about people working within the system to make things better 
So yeah. I think that maybe that that that's an appetite that needs you know fulfilled. I want to second Caroline's endorsement of For the People. I am a couple episodes behind, but uh, we're doing a thing on the site now. That's Consequence of Sound.net, <gasps> where at the end of the month, I go in and I pick like an episode of the month and then some things that we didn't get a chance to write about. And um, then like a summary of all the TV shit that ran in the, over the course of a month. And uh, Clint came up with the name because he loves a good pun. <laughs> yep. It, that, that particular, I also love bad puns. Uh, that particular <laughs> column is called Halt and Catch Up, which oh, just, nice. I know, it makes one. me so happy. <laughs> anyway, I wrote about For the People in that column last month alongside deception and um, instinct and sort of like profiling a couple of procedurals that we didn't really get a chance to write about. So yeah, For the People is was my pick of those. And I think that it wears its heart on its sleeve in a very appealing way. Yeah. And even if you can tell what the end of the episode is going to be by the second minute of that episode, it's still totally worth watching. Mm-hmm. And I like um, Britt Robertson a lot, but I also like Susanna Flood, who mm-hmm. plays, what's the name of Post-It's Lawyer? She's posted Little letter. John, Kate Little Kate John. Kate Little John. They're Which I always all think like, is such a weird name. It is really mm. weird. Little John. I'm like, are we in Robin Hood over it's here? It's very strange. Yeah. But it's full of sexy, sexy lawyers, as you could predict. <laughs> it has, it right? has the, like, yeah, as serious as I made it sound with this, I mean, and the mandatory minimum plot is serious. It's also like the soapy Grey's Anatomy, yeah. young, hot people hooking up. Like, you have sexy that lawyers element show. Um, yeah. fulfilled as well. Um, but uh, Britt Robertson and Susanna Flood are both great. And then the mentors, the, like, <laughs> The Martin Sheens are um, Anna Devere Smith and what what was the Hope judge's David. name? Oh, oh yeah, uh, Vonda Curtis Hall. Yep. Yeah, and then um, Hope Davis mm-hmm. and Ben Shankman, mm-hmm. and they're all great. <laughs> so I I give it a thumbs up as well. God, there was a lot of really good TV this week, and I feel like there were a wealth of riches, and I could have picked any number of things. Um, but I'm gonna go with Chapter Eleven of Legion, which I have my struggles with, but I thought that this episode was really great. It uses the show's visually inventive thing in a the best way possible. It's a great showcase for Aubrey Plaza, but it also manages to link the conceit to the emotional lives of the characters, which is something that Legion struggles with sometimes. So basically, you know from the earliest moments of Legion that somehow the season is going to be about the maze and people being stuck in the maze. And here they're in the maze. Um, it, there is a virus that the characters on the show catch, which essentially traps them in, I don't know, their mind palaces, if we want to be Sherlock about it, where they create basically the perfect prison for themselves based on what they actually want. Um, And so it manages to be more invested in the interior lives of its characters than Legion often is, um, which I found really, really appealing. Some great performances more we got more information about Ptolemy who's the mm-hmm. most underserved character on the show than mm-hmm. in all of the other episodes of Legion combined <laughs> yeah so I was really really into this episode and um and I was particularly taken by what Aubrey Plaza does in it so I don't know if anybody else watched that one did anyone else watch I'm not caught it? up yeah. to that one but I'm I'm eagerly looking forward to Legion going beyond just being a really cool artifice and mm-hmm. digging into its characters so yeah, yeah. I thought I was the only one who thought that. So thank you. <laughs> um, tell me how to sweet suit, uh, which I feel like we have to call out because this is a podcast that cares about people's costuming. It so. really does. Yes, yes. It's very cool. Um, and yeah, I, I'd like this episode more than others. I just, I, I always feel very disconnected from the critical consensus consensus with um, Legion because I'm always like, it's really fun. And I immediately forget it because I don't, mm. I, I don't, mm. again, like you said, fabulous artifice. And I, mean, I don't feel like Formalism goes a long way for me, but yeah. Like, or be like, oh, that was a really cool sequence. And I like John Hamm's narration. And I'm not thinking about it 
the next day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's the trouble I have with it because I feel like the people who who watch Legion like love it, and I then I feel bad for not liking it enough. But, Did you no. feel that way about this episode? Um, this episode was fine. Yeah. I thought it was good, but like, and I like the the again like the interior interiority of the characters, like you know, actually getting to know Ptolemy just enough, like which like, it was <laughs> so much more than yeah. I, the um the thing with Gene Smart's character didn't work as well for me. Mm-hmm. Who we chose to go into the minds of felt a bit random. Um, and I, I'm always looking for, and this is something I'm sure we'll talk about with West Wing too. Um, I love procedurals, and I love serialized shows, and I love. For serialized shows, I want them to also be standalone. Like I want to be able to appreciate yeah. and see the structure and the reasoning and the the uh, the the layout of that episode of why like why is it those characters whose minds we go into and mm-hmm. Ptolemy? It feels like we go into his mind because we don't know him very well and why not? Um, and and the other characters as well. It's just like let's have them run into these people. We can't have them run into you know Sid. We can't have them run into until later in the episode. Like I want there to be more craft to it which maybe isn't fair um and that's not necessarily the show that they're trying to do and it's easy for me to be blind to overly crafted <laughs> shows you know <laughs> as a weakness so but um but no i thought it was i thought it was a good episode and i am i'm enjoying the season more than the previous season so i think it's me too and i really liked the first season mm-hmm. yeah. but i have a similar thing where and i feel very similarly about the first season of westworld mm-hmm. where i enjoyed it as i was watching watching it i was in particular really visually dazzled by both of them mm-hmm. and i left feeling like neither of them was anywhere near as smart as they think they are mr robot <laughs> <laughs> but i think that this episode went past that. And mm-hmm. I feel similarly about some of the early episodes of season two of Westworld. So I'm hoping that maybe like in getting their feet wet and figuring some things out that um, that they're both headed to much stronger second seasons where they did a lot right in the first season already. Um, but the things that were lacking are sort of being course corrected. So yeah, fingers yeah. crossed. Right. With that, it is your turn. <laughs> okay. If... You have not seen the season four finale of Jane the Virgin. Do not listen to this section. Alarm, alarm, alarm. Snide alert. Go to the next timestamp and listen to us talk about the West Wing. Okay, okay. Let's talk about Jane the Virgin. Okay, so I'm I'm going to start a timer here. And listeners, I'm going to talk about the spoiler thing <laughs> for one minute. So <laughs> you can, and then then if you want to listen to everything else, but not she that. does in fact have a timer on okay. her phone. Okay, yes. so well, one minute not, from now. Another, nice. Do we need an extra minute in case we need to respond? We'll just fit it all in. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the end of the finale, uh, they reveal, and I hate spoiling all y'all, but I'm gonna do it. Uh, so they reveal that Michael is not dead. Michael, who we saw die last season, and of a heart thing, and it was uh, tragic and... Devastating. Devastating. Like, and they jumped three years in the future so that we would be able to actually have a balanced show with some heartbreak and sorrow, but not only heartbreak and sorrow. And it was handled so well and so beautifully, and it was such a surprise. It came out of nowhere when that happened. They bring it back, but we don't know if he's actually back. I don't it might be his shady brother with a face transplant and amnesia. They talk a lot about amnesia like as a telenovela trope, like in other elements of the show. Mm-hmm. So I'm not convinced that it's actually him. So I don't know, we'll see what happens. But but knowing that it um was planned before and you know, so it didn't come out of nowhere was very encouraging for me. I'm done with my minute, so I will stay vague here. Um but uh it's something that I think 
the more I sit with that twist, immediately upon watching, I was like, side eye. You guys have earned a lot of trust. I don't know if you can earn this. I don't know if I'm going to be cool with it. Uh, but the more I've sat with it, uh, the the more excited I am. We'll see what happens. But if, if any show has earned my trust over the years, it's Jane the Virgin because it's a fabulous show week in, week out. And they pull off things that and they balance such different tones in a way that no other show I can think of would be able to do. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, other spoilers that are not big deal spoilers, but, um, so you, you, you guys know who's on the show right now? Rosario Dawson is on the show yes. playing a character named JR, who is a love interest, uh, for Petra and has been fabulous. And so we keep waiting, like, like it seemed like she was leaving the show, uh, like several episodes ago and we're like, you know, we get it. You're too famous for Jane the Virgin tears, whatever. And then they didn't have her leave and it was like, yay. Um, and then, I mean, her name is JR and it's a telenovela. <laughs> right. So we were just like, I just, just kept waiting. waiting. And, and she's right. too famous for the show, theoretically. Um, so I kept, we kept waiting myself and I'm sure lots of other people for who shot JR. But they didn't do that. They did <laughs> who JR shot. So, oh, so, that's awesome. That's it's great. Oh, so great. I'm very excited just because then <laughs> that means we definitely have Rosario Dawson around for a while next season. And just subverting that is, is fantastic. On top of, of course, the whole barrier gaze shooting a lesbian character um, and whether fatally or not is not something that the show needs to do or I think would do. I think they're aware enough of that. So uh, that was a fabulous part of this episode as well. But just in general, the finale was lovely. They've they've built um, the different relationships uh, over the course of the season uh, to a very stable and happy place. Uh, they've earned every step of the journey. They have I even mean, Zoe is dealing with uh, cancer and chemotherapy and going through a real hard time. They skipped time um, by like three weeks in the middle of this episode in a way that I thought to, to take her from like just starting chemo, feeling good to looks like shit, having a really hard time. Again, they've handled all of these arcs between Rose's new show and bringing Brooke Shields on as <laughs> River Fields. <laughs> um, I think they've just, they've done such a wonderful job. A few episodes ago, we got our um, I Love You moment and you expect the meaningful I Love You moment to be Jane and Raph, but it's not. It's Jane and Petra, which I thought was such a beautiful thing to do. And uh, they've, they've just been crushing it all season. And it was a lovely finale that act- that earned its dread and its hype um, with its final shocking twist or question mark for next season uh, in a way that it was fabulous to watch. And I look forward to talking about it more on the Talkers next week <laughs> when I can you know, have full uh, language and conversation without At the Televerse. Theteleverse.org. Yeah. yeah. I'm not just, not just trying to, to pit my podcast, which, of course, we all are always doing, but um, but just because, like, it's, I'm going to have another week to think about it before we record, so that's going to be good, because I'm yeah, sure I will go. change my mind like three times before then. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, welcome back, people who watched Jane the Virgin. Indeed. <laughs> it's nice to have you back. I think it's time to transition to the main event. Clint, take true. us away. Well, uh, like you said in the intro, this is the inaugural episode of our brand new segment. Cheers. You get hoins, uh, which you <laughs> named. <laughs> what a delivery. Yeah. I know. <laughs> In which we're going to celebrate really great episodes of TV, really ambitious episodes of TV, um, episodes that are kind of the er example of their respective shows and perhaps even influential episodes of television throughout the history of the medium. Mm -hmm. And uh, we couldn't very well do that without doing the episode that spawned the name, <laughs> the season two finale of The West Wing, uh, the Two West Cathedrals. Wing. Uh, so, Allison, uh, apart from that explanation, uh, why this episode? Well, 
I want to take a second because before I explain why it is that we pick two cathedrals, I would like to take a second to talk about the episode of The West Wing that Kate thought we should be discussing, another <laughs> season two episode um, <laughs> called Noel, which is one of two episodes that earned Bradley Whitford an Emmy for this season. Bradley Whitford. Um, <laughs> he's going to be on Handmaids. So he's on season two of Handmaids. Why do we only make him play evil people I, now? Uh, I don't know. Because he's so good at it. Oh, I love him. He's 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 really good. He at got all of down. his goodness out in the West Wing. Yeah, trophy wife. Well, he's he's been a bad well, guy. Yeah. Wife. He's been we a bad guy since show. Billy Madison for me, though. So, like. and uh, Adventures in Baby, he did have a string. I'm so sorry that we've done a whole tangent, but That's he okay. started playing all the '80s villains, like yeah. the shitty mm. boyfriends, and then he was really good, like a good person on The West Wing, and now he's yeah. back to playing like terrible evil people. Well, because that that character was able to channel his abrasiveness, his very like, his mm-hmm. acid tongue, in like a really it, for for the he's forces of good. Legitimately, really good in Billy Madison. Yeah, he know he's, he's great. Like, he's ex- Exactly what he needs to be. But if you're not named Alice and Janney, you got one Emmy for the West Wing or none at all. Mm-hmm. And this this season was Bradley Whitford's one Emmy for the West Wing. The Wikipedia hole that I alerted to before we started recording hmm. that I fell down was seeing what episodes of the West Wing the actors submitted to the Emmys. Mm-hmm. Um and the only person who submitted to Cathedrals was Martin Sheen, which makes sense. Yeah. Um Although Kirsten Nelson should have been fucking nominated for an Emmy for this episode. Um, But Josh Lyman, Bradley Whitford, submitted In the Shadow of Two Gunmen Part Mm -hmm. Two, which Mm -hmm. he's great in. That's the... That's the second part of the season opener of season two, and um, Noel. And I think Noel would be like a strong contender if we hadn't already fucking named this, yeah. <laughs> this segment for two cathedrals, which I do think has an edge in that they're untranslated Latin segments. Yeah, but maybe like a real quick appreciation for Noel, just mm-hmm. to oh yeah. Oh. And this is not to say that we can't do another West Wing. And episode we down might the road. because yeah. Noel is also a very ambitious episode of television. There, mm-hmm. there is one reason I was like, oh, I kind of would like to do Noel, um, and it is Yoyama. <laughs> that is it. That because I, I have sat on stage that like as far as I am from you, Allison, from Yoyama, while he played that piece. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I I was in the Civic uh, Orchestra uh, and uh, and we toured with him and cool. so mm-hmm. yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. A, it is <laughs> awesome. Uh, and so I will that will always have a place in my heart. So yes. it's well, well, but there are reasons beyond that. It's yeah, it's a very yeah, good episode. Noel is like perfectly oh edited. Yeah, incredibly well. And the like, and Bradley Whitford's performance is towering, and it's just real good. I've been down here before. I know the way up. You know, like, yes. like there's some oh. really great stuff in there. An all-time great West Wing moment. Yeah. Can I also say, as we're going to, like, Emmy wins, I so recommend listeners going on YouTube, look at the time that John Spencer wins, because the best thing about that, it he's like him and every other person in the category is also a West Wing person. Mm-hmm. And when he wins... They could not be more excited for him. It's like Bradley Whitford and Dulé Hill. <laughs> and I think Richard Schiff just like leaping out of their seats because they all love John Spencer so much. And I feel like that mm-hmm. video encompasses the ethos of the West Wing mm-hmm. like better than anything else. It's yeah. so great. It's beautiful. The way that John Spencer got this part, this is again from all the reading I did today, mm-hmm. is that they were talking about casting Leo McGarry and Aaron Sorkin said, we need somebody kind of like John Spencer. <laughs> and then John Wells was like, 
well, what about John Spencer? <laughs> and they called him and he said yes. Uh, Which, by the way, is also how Alec Baldwin got cast on 30 Rock. So. That's great. And Mary McDonnell on Battlestar. Really? Oh, wow. Oh, that's I awesome. I know that. So that's the thing. moral is. I think would be a good candidate for You Get Hoynes, too. When you, yeah, I agree. Yeah. When you write a character and you think, man, that actor would be great, but they'd probably say no, you should probably just offer it yeah. to them anyway yeah. and see what they say. Um, they like getting money. John Spencer is magical. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, so no, maybe we'll do a you get Hoynes for Noel later, way down the road. But but two cathedrals yeah. as the the least excited person at the table, two cathedrals is the correct choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I acknowledge ambition. That. Like it is, it, it is, is ambitious. It fits the brief. Um, it yeah. is the in the um, incredibly disciplined, notedly correct world of IMDb rankings. <laughs> it is the highest rated episode of The West Wing. Well, in, in the face of that pure objectivity, I mean, how can <laughs> sometimes we argue? it's right? Yeah, no, it's sometimes right. it's right. When you look at the list of the highest rated Doctor Who episodes, you're like, that seems right. More with a, like with a few exceptions, that seems right. And yeah. The West Wing, it's like that seems right. And The Shadow Two Gunman <laughs> is pretty high. And, yeah. We're calling this sequence You Get Hoynes because a network drama in 2001 aired an episode filmed in the National Cathedral Mm -hmm. in which the president of the United States calls God a feckless thug and then rails at him in Latin before lighting a cigarette putting it out on the floor and yelling, you get Hoynes. <laughs> uh, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it existed. I still can't believe it exists. And the episode isn't merely ambitious for that sequence. But any episode that's like, fuck it, let's do it in Latin. Mm-hmm. Let's do it in Latin and then let's not translate it. Gets a vote from Yeah. Me. Well, that was another way that they could drop in some F-bombs too to God, right? I want you all to know that Clint looked up how to say welcome to TV party. We're talking about the West Wing in Latin. Yeah. Maybe Nerd we'll... alert. I know. Pushes <laughs> up glasses. But this is also an episode that mirrors the structure of the season opener and that it jumps back and forth to the past, only instead of going to the beginning of the campaign, it goes essentially to the beginning of Jed Bartlett's political life mm-hmm. and when he started to be aware of what he could do and what he wanted to do. It certainly is the beginning of his relationship with Dolores Landingham, a character who I guess spoilers for a show that's more than 10 years old, um, was killed off in the previous episode and who has an incredible scene here Mm. and manages to plant these little seeds throughout that you assume are just throwaways that come to mean a lot. Um, It's one of my favorite things that Aaron Sorkin has ever written, and Aaron Sorkin has written some incredibly self-indulgent pieces of total bullshit, but he has also written some works of genius, of absolute genius. I think this is one of them. So I'm really excited to talk about this show, Mm -hmm. which I, this episode, which I watched three times this week and (laughs) lost my shit for every time. Caroline made the mistake of putting on mascara before she watched it, which I find really delightful so what we're gonna do is we are gonna talk about this episode in sort of four little elements we also have an interview that i'm really excited to get into and uh, i think that we should kick it off after this ad break by talking about what it does and why it works we oh i was also gonna do a synopsis fuck oh we'll do that after this ad break (laughs) we'll go get get some numbers and show them to you after the break oh thanks welcome back 
So here's what happens in two cathedrals. <laughs> so it's the culmination. Previously on the West Wing. Totally. So it's the culmination of a probably six episode arc. Longer than that, really, because we first learn about Bartlett's illness since near the end of season one. Mm-hmm. But it really kicks off with 17 people, another really great episode, and an episode that was on Richard Schiff's Emmy mm-hmm. ballot, mm-hmm. which uh, he, yeah. he's, it's a really fucking good yeah. episode. It's a really good episode. It's a really good episode. So it sort of starts with the Stackhouse filibuster, where it really starts with 17 people, where it's what happens once people start to find out that President Bartlett has multiple sclerosis and kept it from the American people over the course of the election. 17 people is Toby finding out. And then over the course of the next several episodes, first you find out that Charlie knew the whole time somehow because Mm. Zoe told him and that scene is really amazing. And the White House counsel, played by Oliver Platt, finds out. And then CJ and Josh find out. And then Sam finds out. And at one point, Toby tells Donna. And that's an incredible scene and all of this stuff. Leading up to 18th and Potomac, an episode where you're like, why is this called 18th and Potomac? Until the very final minutes of the episode when you find out as they're planning how they're going to tell the world that the president has MS after they've Mm -hmm. already asked the network for airtime, after there is absolutely no turning back. Mrs. Landingham, played by the great Catherine, the great late great Catherine Houston, went to pick up her new car, the first car she ever bought for herself. And on her way back to the White House to talk to the president where he was going to tell her he had MS, she was hit by a drunk driver and killed. Two cathedrals drills is the culmination of that storyline in which the White House staff plans for the president to reveal this to the world, knowing that the very first question he's going to be asked after he tells everyone is whether or not you're going to run for re-election, and they don't have an answer. And that's pretty much it. In the course of the episode, the president in meetings and while he's talking to other people keeps flashing back to his childhood when he first met Mrs. Landingham at his boarding school in New Hampshire where his dick father who's also the headmaster <laughs> played by newscaster Lawrence O'Donnell who's also a producer on the show and, yes. writer, yeah. Yeah. and a consultant yeah. Um, yeah who's just the biggest fucking asshole with He's his squirrely fucking glasses paying got Lawrence the... O'Donnell to slap a child in that episode <laughs> he is paying the women less than the men and it's about Mrs. Lanningham talking to Jed Bartlett about that and um, all kinds of other things so a lot happens um, we are going to break this down into four categories though I'm sure we will wander all over the place we are going to talk about the writing mm-hmm. the performances the direction and cinematography and the scoring and soundtrack all of which are super important and in the case of the soundtrack incredibly important because unusually for the West Wing the final moments of the episode hinge on a particular song in a way I think that's really great now we are going to talk about what it does and why it works Clint mm-hmm. do you have anything to add no <laughs> Go for it. I'm such a dick. Oh, I'm a regular headmaster Bartlett. Yeah, I know, right? <sighs> um, here's a fun thing that we found out in the course of our interview with Kirsten Nelson, which we'll be hearing a little bit later, mm-hmm. at least parts of a little bit later. Um, Lawrence O'Donnell played that part because he did it at the table read because they hadn't cast it yet. And then they were all like, you should do it. And, <laughs> and he was like, but I'm not an actor. They were like, we don't care. You're yeah, doing yeah. it. So they like, did. We need someone kind of like Lawrence O'Donnell. Like, why don't we just get Lawrence <laughs> Why don't O'Donnell? we just get Lawrence O'Donnell? Yeah. Um, so the first category is writing, which is mine. So that means you're going to have to listen to me talk a whole lot more. But there are a lot of things that I appreciate about this episode. And I think um, part of what makes it so smart is that all of the little things that happen all come to 
carry a bunch of weight, right? First of all, just structurally, the fact that it mirrors in the shadow of two gunmen is really smart, but it does it in a totally different way. And all of the little things that get mentioned, um, the president's fascination with the storm becomes really important because he mentions it in his speech to God, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. It culminates in the door blowing open repeatedly, which is part of what ushers in the entrance of Miss Landingham in that incredible scene near the end of the episode. It also results in him going out to stand in the weather and then Charlie bringing him his coat and him ignoring it and walking through the rain to the limo, which leads to what might actually be my favorite moment in the episode, which is when Charlie stops, takes off his coat and leaves his coat on his desk so that they both don't have their coats on. It just, it really gets me a lot. It gets me in all of my feelings places. Anyway, the meeting with Greg Summerhays comes to fruition in a really unexpected way because a lot of this arc is about the staff's acceptance of what Bartlett has done and Toby doesn't actually really realize how he feels about it and what it means to him until he's in this meeting where he has to turn down a job offer which he thinks is insulting that it even happens there's from the earliest moments the confidence that leo has that the president is gonna run which he displays in that meeting to the guy from borat and somebody else (laughs) and you don't understand why it is that he feels that way but it calls back to let bartlett be bartlett which also gets referenced in the text and it's all just really smart and thoughtful and complicated and intricate and that's all before you get to the incredibly beautiful writing um, Mm -hmm. of the dialogue particularly Bartlett's scene in the cathedral which is then also referenced in the flashbacks and so on I'm wondering what you all have to say about the writing of this episode Mm. Um, I am admittedly a Sorkin apologist noting that I have all kinds of issues with his shit too but I'm a fan I'll start and say so there was something going around on Twitter recently where you people were sharing like the four films that sort of defined them or defined their artistic sensibilities in some way and I kind of found that hard to do with films for some reason but mm-hmm. I find it very easy to do with TV shows and West Wing for me is like one of the if not the biggest ones like I feel like this show just I I just like is who I am. I it's like so fundamental to the core of everything <laughs> I love. So I don't even feel like I can all like objectively watch and like I don't know. Just going back and rewatch. I watched this and I also watched Eighteenth of Potomac first because I, I almost feel like they are. I was actually remember them as being an explicit two parter, which they're not. But I feel like the emotional weight of two cathedrals almost doesn't land as well if you haven't like mm-hmm. relatively recently watched ding Eighth ding ding yeah. more on that later <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's definitely a thing that i agree with but yeah i don't know just in general i just love the west wing and i it, there are plenty of shows that i've watched in love like friday night lights where i enjoyed it all but i can't quote you know chapter and verse on the episodes and the seasons and this happens and this happens and but with west wing it's like all just baked into who i am and the little <laughs> moments and like you could just say like charlie doesn't put on his coat and i totally know what you're talking about um, and about writing in particular, so I think with Sorkin, I mean, it really is all in the text. Like, it's hard to separate directing and acting and all that stuff from what he actually writes because it's so specific. And that is a moment, like, literally Charlie not putting – or Charlie taking off his coat is written into the script. And, again, for my umpteenth plug of the West Wing Weekly, um, they ended up doing a two-part podcast episode about this episode and they interview Lawrence O'Donnell if you want to hear the story about him hmm. being at the table read himself they interview um 
Kirsten Nelson. They interview someone just about, like, presidents who have hidden health problems in the past, including the fact that Woodrow Wilson, like, had a stroke. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that maybe is why the U.S. didn't join the League, League of, of Nations. Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they and then Sorkin's on himself. And so he is specifically saying that, like, things like that, like Charlie taking off the coat, like, all of that is scripted. Little things that sound almost improvised by the actors like little repetitions or whatever all of that is in the writing and so it really more so than i think any other show the writing is key to whatever you like or don't like about this episode Mm -hmm. it's all like so specifically baked into the script (laughs) Mm -hmm. well because west wing is one of those shows that the for most of the show is pretty auteur driven like it is an aaron sorkin joint um, and so it does, the writing does feel like very much a, a piece of that. There are two major things I love about the West Wing that I think are encapsulated into cathedrals. One are the, the really deep, masterful, the, the, that understanding of character. And I think the the episode advances those in wonderful ways, but also freely admitting subjectively that I align politically with a lot of the show's values. It's a really great example of like that that political idealism that you want to have about how our government works and the people who do it and the people who like genuinely have that give me numbers I think is just one of the greatest phrases in the episode itself because Mm -hmm. it it evinces this fact-based empathetic understanding of how the nation works as a whole and the fact that Bartlett wants numbers and he is taught to get numbers or taught to understand and respect those numbers um, demonstrates this way that I wish government ran especially now. The fact that both of those things, both that intricate character work and uh, that very earnest political polemic about responsible governance is evident in two cathedrals. And I think that's the reason why. I mean, I I also share your guys' sentiments that I really, really enjoy it. I'm also partial to, well, God, Jed, I don't even want to know you. Oh, Oh, man. I don't even want to know you. God, it just gets me. Mm -hmm. The trouble I have with Sorkin stuff after post newsroom and very explicitly post that bullshit campus rape episode of of, of newsroom yeah mm-hmm. um is how similar all of his things are he has a he has a, a voice and um a patter and a rhythm um that is through all of his work and there's nothing wrong with that but what the trouble i ran into is how similar a lot of the themes the characters and even just plot points are there certain tropes you can expect to come up as you're saying, in, in a yeah. Sorkin, Sorkin joint um, one of those issues for me with a lot of Sorkin stuff even though I really like most of his stuff that I've seen is how not defined the characters are mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. most of the characters sound exactly the same it's just a matter of what the actor can bring to it Agreed. that differentiates yeah. them mm-hmm. um, so when I watched two, three, two cathedrals I hadn't seen it in quite a while and um, I was a little nervous like oh, I love the show and I have such fun memories of this episode but that was before I got as much baggage that I now have with Sorkin, how is it gonna, you know, deal? How's it gonna do? But I think this episode actually, listeners may know from if they listen to my other podcast that I, I take notes in colors, and I had a color <laughs> for Sorkin stuff, and I only used it once. I, it was very exciting because um, uh, he the, he loves doing storms, like big climactic storms at, in an intense moment. They, they did it on Sports Night. They did it here. I'm pretty sure it's at least they once do it in, later like, in the West Wing. Yeah, it happens a bunch. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. where you know, like the storm outside, the storm within. Like we, I get it, but like after you've seen it in a while, like it loses some of its power. Here, I think it it really works and is very affecting and is earned. Um, but the other Sorkin things that you're looking for don't happen as much, and I think a big part of that is because it is so centered on Jed 
And so you don't get to notice how similar everybody's dialogue is as much because they just don't have as much of it. And because there's a lot more, um, they're dealing with some significant betrayal and confusion and concern. Like they're, they're dealing with serious emotions. Mm-hmm. So the actors mm-hmm. can really imbue what they do have with a lot of specificity. Um, so for me, a lot of the, the things that I was worried about pinging for me as a problem um, with the writing of with, with Sorkin's didn't. Hmm. So that was wonderful. <laughs> and I actually could just really enjoy this episode when I was watching it quite a bit. Um, the things that I was surprised by what bothered me and what didn't in the writing. And as I think the only person at this table who regularly works with children and teenagers, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The It's not as cute when you have experience working with kids, watching um, a grown-ass woman be deferential to a teenager. It's like, when that's their dynamic, when he's president, I, that works better. But from the first moment that she, Mrs. Lanham is introduced, there's like this, and they, they call it a big sister dynamic. Sure. But I never get a sense from Mrs. Lanham that she's indulging him. I get the sense that like it's that it's right and appropriate that that should be their dynamic, and we're in Jed's memories and his point of view, and so that makes sense. And certainly the show is from his point of view, and we've already you know we're already so established Mrs. Lanahan. We love Mrs. Lanahan because hmm. Catherine Jason's performance is so terrific throughout the series. But rewatching just this episode in isolation, that never would have occurred to me. But now it did. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. she's telling you that this is. A re- that this is a real problem and you're don't you don't even stop walking to to this to listen to this person who theoretically you care about and you want numbers and that makes sense and that's a good important thing to to mention but you could also like seem like you care but that would that would mess up the the tone and that wouldn't be sorkin so and, we don't and i guess to mildly counterpoint that i felt like the purpose of those flashbacks was to teach him to have that moment. Like he wasn't, he, he didn't have that deference yet. And that was what Mrs. Lanningham was teaching him. But then again, I also understand the context as well, especially in these scenes, we learn more about Mrs. Lanningham, but she's still very much a subordinate character to Jed's journey. Do we learn more about her? I don't think or we learn more about I, her I guess for me, I learned that I learned the, ex- the deeper extent to which she was related to Jed um, earlier in his life. And the fact that she's sort of always been like that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we learned something really important, which is that she is a political person. Uh Like Mm -hmm. Mrs. Landingham, the closest we get to experiencing her as a person who cares about politics and not just cares about Bartlett, is the episode where she and Toby um, go to to bury the homeless veteran. Mm -hmm. I miss my boys, Charlie. Yes. Another fabulous uh, Christmas episode. Yes. Mm. But there we get a sense that she, we know that she cares about law and propriety and doing everything possible to make sure that the president isn't compromised in any way. Something that's echoed in 18th and Potomac when she doesn't take a deal on her car Mm -hmm. because she cannot possibly have it be interpreted as her getting something because she's so related to, closely linked to the president. But here she actually talks about what she thinks and believes and directly impacts Jed. And so suddenly their relationship becomes something different where you can see, like I, it made me sort of imagine what happened when he was first in a position where he needed a secretary, where he needed an assistant, um, presumably like maybe in his house career, maybe as governor, I'm sort of foggy on the timeline. I'm 
mm-hmm. I am no longer watching the West Wing on a loop when I don't have anything else to do <laughs> because it makes me too sad because yeah. the world is garbage. But it made me imagine what it was like when he found out he was going to be an elected official or a professor. Maybe it was when he was a professor, whatever it was. And one of the things he knew he needed was he needed Dolores Landingham. And that, to me, says a lot about both of them, and it colors all of their interactions previously in the series in a slightly new light. So I guess it's maybe not so much that we learn a ton about her, although we do encounter her as a political entity. It's more that we learn about their relationship mm-hmm. in a way that was very meaningful to me. She, she's mm-hmm. he's Jiminy Cricket. Well, she challenges him, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and she's, she's what motivates him to do something and besides being the precocious child of an asshole father. When he first needed a job, I need a secretary. Oh, I'll get Miss Lanham. What makes me sad about that is why isn't she too busy changing the world herself? Yeah. To stop what she's doing to assist him or she has been Yeah, I mean to some extent I think it is a different time. Like like yeah. what the flashbacks like nineteen sixty something. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't think it's crazy to think that the wealthy son of the headmaster in that would unfairly have some authority over his father's secretary. So uh, the dynamic didn't necessarily ring false in that way to me, but I will agree with you that like, I don't know if I really like the flashbacks in this episode. I like the performances within them, but I've always just found it like slightly weird that he's known Mrs. Landingham that long. That doesn't jive the length in which they've known each other to me, doesn't jive with their relationship within the rest of the show, like Martin Sheen and Catherine Joustin's existing relationship. Mm-hmm. So I do agree with you that there's something about that that bugs me, but I feel like maybe the specifics of what, of what gets me is maybe different than the specifics yeah. that like you're Wait. rubbing up against. Well, and for me, it's just that, like, I think the the scenes were great and they're well done. And it's just like, of course, this is the story that Aaron Sorkin would write. It would never occur to him to at least that's I don't know him. But it from what <laughs> I've seen of his, his writing, it's like like he I don't know that he's notices how often he does falls into these tropes of like the supportive female figure who's just there to tell the the great man how great he is. And just, you know, the, these are things that appear uh, pop up in Sorkin's writing over and over and over and over and over again. And so, of course, this is the only way Sorkin would ever write this relationship. So I don't expect it to be different, but it I did I noticed it in a way, that, which actually maybe is a good thing for me as a TV critic and a person whose uh, perspectives are shifting over the years, to, to notice that and be like, what's her interiority? What's her life? Now, we do learn about her that she is smart. She's pragmatic. She's willing to do the work. She's willing to eat some shit if she has <laughs> to. Like, like I, it, it's not the place for it. This episode's not the place for it but in my head my head canon she goes away she was like oh, that's entitled okay no there's he's like there's a good kid in there i just got a <laughs> he's got a jerk for a dad and that explains why he is treating me like garbage not garbage but you know yeah it is her doing a lot of emotional labor yeah. so that but that seems like accurate for the time like she would yeah. not right like she would not have been that was the way to change him at that point. But yeah. also like if that was the story in the present day of the West Wing, I feel mm-hmm. like it would have rubbed me wrong more yeah. than it is being in the nineteen sixty yeah. with that mm-hmm. dynamic. Well, in place. and for me, part of what may and it's not retconning really, but it is you have to think of the end game, which isn't necessarily the best way to watch TV, right? Like mm-hmm. I forgive a lot of the things that might not totally work with the flashbacks because of the payoff. Mm-hmm. Because the payoff is the final scene between Martin Sheen and Catherine mm-hmm. Joustin, yeah. yeah, which is, to me, when we were talking to Kirsten Nelson, we talked a lot about sort of like the three 
emotional climaxes of the episode four if you count her speech to him in the flashback the you're a boy king speech Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but them being the speech in the national cathedral the scene in the oval office between the president and mrs landingham and then um the put his hands in his pockets and smiled at the end um and it all to me hinges on the scene between the two of them in the Oval Office, which is unique in the West. It's unusual. Sorkin doesn't really go for that kind of magical realism. Mm. And I'm curious what you all think about that, which is probably also a great way to transition into talking about performances, which is Caroline's category. Um, Because to me, that scene is like 100% perfect. Fires on all cylinders, moving upsetting beautifully shot beautifully acted beautifully written exactly the right length mm-hmm. um and does exactly what it needs to do to set up this thrilling ending which is something odd to say about a press conference <laughs> right yeah. um so yeah well, how did you all feel about that scene I, I love that scene i mean i mentioned before the the whole give me numbers thing and i think that it cuts to the heart of it it's it's him realizing all the work that still needs to be done and um he's enough of a political idealist that he feels he has the conviction to make that work to to deal with all the people who are in poverty and how many americans are drug addicts and all that stuff and it's it it's a reminder not just to jed but when i rewatched the episode to me of the importance of being politically aware and politically active um when i hear ms landingham giving the numbers i feel like she's giving the numbers to me and to the viewer as well that, that's one major reason why i value that scene so much i love that scene too and to some extent i, w- I almost wish that the flashbacks were to Catherine Houston and martin sheen like in their younger t- like him as governor or like I don't know. I really stick on the fact that him knowing her since he was like 16, 17, that just feels slightly wrong to me, to their present day dynamic. Something about that's just such a long amount of time to know someone. And I almost wish that the like, I don't mind the flashback structure, but I almost wish it had been like, I mean, I guess then you can't really get the father in there. But to some extent, I love 18th of Potomac and I love the last 20 minutes of Two Cathedrals. And that's sort of what I think of when I think of my love for Two Cathedrals. But I'm not actually sure. And maybe this speaks to something like what Kate was saying before, just your feelings on the episode as a whole. But like there are mm-hmm. parts of this episode as a whole that do feel a little bit not fully emotionally satisfying until the end. And then like you're saying, Allison, mm-hmm. like that coming back and then we get Mrs. Landingham and we're able to like the Mrs. Landingham we know and we're able to sort of round all these things off that is super satisfying. I don't know if the path to get there is as satisfying as I always remember it being. Does that make sense? I'm going to jump in and say I think that if they had flashed back to a later time and they used the same actor, they used Catherine Houston, it wouldn't be as effective. When she shows up. When when she shows up because we wouldn't be missing her. Yeah. And the the read, uh, her last line as she leaves, I don't even want to know you. Like I think that that, for that mm. to hit as effectively, we need to have had some distance from her. Sure. So maybe there's that. I love that scene. Um, and I think even just like the choice of when they cut away and it's just him by himself yep. and when they yeah. come back. I think oh. it's, just it's, the once and really briefly. Yeah. But, yeah. And, yeah, enough. And that the performance, everything comes together in that scene to like, I talked about the storm outside, right? The the levels match that. And like it, it all comes together, I think, in that scene. I think it's terrific. Yeah. yeah. And I guess for me, I was fine with Jed knowing Mrs. Landingham that early because I think it really helps sell how wounded he is by her loss. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if it was just, you know, this, this, this assistant that she, he'd known for like, you know, 
a decade or more, it would still hurt, but it wouldn't be that existential wounding that would cause him to have that speech against God. Um, because this isn't just someone who he's been really familiar with throughout his entire life. Mm-hmm. This is effectively the woman who inspired him to who really informed his politics and his worldview in this important way. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with them having known each other that long because then the sting of her loss is that much more deeply felt. I it just feels a little neat. Well, and I also well, I, you can't have a Sorkin joint without it being neat. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't. Um, I hadn't thought of this, Carolyn, but I, I don't actually believe that he's known her longer than he has his wife. Yeah, you know that like, like she is truly his his family mother, to some yeah. extent. Yeah, Which I think. I, I mean, but that, then maybe it's but... like because I was trying to think through. Like, I guess he would have known her for like his last two years of high school, then probably gone away to college and not seen her very often. It's an yeah, uninterrupted stretch. Of, yeah, yeah. 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 That they just have a history. That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I said that that was the great way to transition, but there are actually two things I want to talk about before we go. Brief things. Mm-hmm. One, we haven't actually talked about that speech very much. The speech to God, which I yeah. feel like is the thing that it's people think thing. about right yeah. um but also i'm curious what you all think the two cathedrals are everyone say things because i just listened to the west wing weekly episode about <laughs> so this you can, I can tell, tell us you, yeah. uh-huh. with orkin's orkin's aaron aaron <laughs> sorkin yeah. made caveats that he never likes to feel like his authorial intent is what the audience should take sure. away but he mm-hmm. did have an answer well i think it's one of those things that's open so yes. we'll save caroline yes. for last okay, okay i'm curious what you think the two cathedrals are because mm. one is obviously the, the cathedral. cathedral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I haven't thought because I was thinking about that. This, this is like I never actually thought about that title. Um, but like the easy answer is the Oval Office and the Cathedral. What about Church you? and State? Obviously, I think National Cathedral. But I almost wonder if the school was the Second Cathedral, mm-hmm. the chapel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought both of those things, and then sort of landed on maybe it being the press conference, like the, yeah. mm-hmm. um, like the. I don't know, Church of Public Opinion, I guess. But I'm curious to know what the actual thing is. Well, Sorkin had said that he had been thinking of the National Cathedral and the Cathedral of Jed's school, like Clint said. And so you have like the cigarette in both cases. Mm -hmm, But I also think it gets at this idea that I know Sorkin has also said, and I think it's just clear from the monologue, but that President Bartlett is as when he's railing against God, he's as much railing against his literal father. And even though obviously those aren't like cathedrals themselves, it feels like it's just this idea of two pillars in his life, Mm -hmm. like his faith and his father and sort of how those are supportive or destructive or Mm -hmm. like that really complicated relation. I guess I never really thought of the title as like which literal two spaces is such this idea of just like this duality Mm -hmm. of choices or forces that shape you or whatever. Yeah. And I was along that along those lines, I I assume Miss Lanningham would count as a cathedral in that, in that spiritual respect. Yeah, Maybe it's Mrs. Lanningham and his father. Perhaps. Okay. I'm going to ask potentially a stupid question. Why is he really against his stupid dad? Like I have obviously God dad connections certainly, Mm -hmm. but like why does Mrs. Lanningham dying make him angry at his father? I never really read that myself. His father is, but you're supposed well, like to when do... Mrs. Landingham comes in to, in that dream sequence yeah. or whatever the ghost sequence, she says like, "Your father was a prick who beat you because he didn't think that you were smart enough." Like that, there's something tied to because like, he was never Bartlett's as smart sense as his of identity mm-hmm. yeah. is so tied to who his father was and his like moments of crises. Yeah, but why does that come up? Now, like, why does that? Why is she? Because like, he she met Mrs. Landingham through the context of his father. So, mm-hmm. well, and I think because. Maybe because it ultimately he, I mean, 
the story in the flashback is a story of failure. He does not yeah. talk to his father yeah. about pay inequity uh-huh. um, because he tries to talk about it and his father is fixated on this quote in the paper mm. and then he gets slapped across the face and he uses that moment to talk about it's not a non-denominational yeah. service, which he probably also wouldn't have brought up, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And ultimately he shuts him down about both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite lines in the entire episode is, um, you're Catholic because your mother is... And you're a student here because I'm the headmaster. How's yeah. that for clever with words? The answer is it's that's not clever. Yeah. That's not being clever with words. You are not clever. Yeah. You are like still you are infinitely less clever than your son. Yeah. Um yeah. that but idea, yeah. I can't remember. I don't I think this was the first time it was introduced, but the idea that Bartlett's father wasn't Catholic, that freaking blows my mind. Like I just because Catholicism is so like a part of who Bartlett is, and the idea that that the origin story for that was that that was like a rebellious choice. I don't know. That is like insane to me. Like mm-hmm. I can't even express how much that like changes my shape. Of <laughs> All the who cool the kids go Catholic like, <laughs> I don't know that. Yeah, I, that is just like crazy to me. So I feel like it's tied up in that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's for me again. It's another. Maybe I should have pulled up my purple pen. That's another Sorkin alert because he loves to have his male protagonists have abusive fathers. That's, or his female protagonists. Or, or female protagonists. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it comes up. He just over likes and over daddy again. issues. Yeah. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. got daddy issues. And it, it, and it, it's something I've never thought about with this episode because it's just so well done. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. but why? Why is he being angry? At his dad? Well, I think because anytime mm-hmm. there's fate, if if his Catholicism is in some ways defined in opposition to his dad anytime he's thinking about religion it is his dad they're in they're inseparable to him like they literally are the same thing and if we're saying that mrs landingham was basically his mother figure Mm -hmm. then your mother figure dying is going to bring up feelings about your father so i don't think it's that much of a leap and it's also just like him it's like bartlett like the speech is about miss landingham but it's also about like hiding the ms and everything that's happened in his life that's bad and the tendership that got lost in the storm and yeah Mm -hmm. it i don't know it is like a simplistic thing like everything comes down to daddy issues but i feel like i don't know sometimes there are good stories of daddy issues Mm -hmm. and as someone who grew up catholic catholics do say the things in masses that he said catholics don't say i was looking this up i think it's the order of it that's different or something they don't what they were trying to imply but yeah like i was like it's not the ending that is it also has changed a lot if i'm not mistaken maybe they say it now because of that episode (laughs) (laughs) um and that so that was yeah that was interesting like we gotta fix this um before (laughs) we leave writing about Mm. that speech or i guess really anywhere but that since the speech is kind of like the speech in that final I'll see with Mrs. Lanningham are sort of the centerpieces. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's like a writing moment that sticks out to any of you as being mm-hmm. particularly m- moving or meaningful. I am always b- outside of Charlie's coat, which, like I said, knocks me sideways. I always get really um, choked up about him. T- what was Josh Lyman a warning shot? That was my son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a performance mo- moment, too, yeah. because that's how Martin Sheen delivers that line. But um, whew, gets me that whole segment of the speech where he's like, that's not enough to buy me out of the doghouse because I, I love that idea of bargaining with God a little bit and so, sort of, especially as someone who thinks of himself as accomplishing a lot. And he's like, I, you know, I do so many things. Isn't this enough to absolve me of the sins mm-hmm. that I've done? Like lying about that's my That's also MS. the first place the Latin comes in too. And part of why I was, I like this and not, this is amazing when I rewatched it is because I just rewatched this episode and that whole scene in the cathedral, um, what it really struck me, I was like, oh, this is good. But the reason I was like, oh, this is good. And I realized the reason I'm not going, this is amazing is because 
as in a standalone episode of television, it is good. As a culmination of a season, mm-hmm. it is fantastic. Yeah, I and agree. It, mm-hmm. And it culminates everything, brings these threads of the ship and the, the, the shooting and all these different things in a really, really powerful way that highlights why I love television in a different way than other mediums uh, of, mm-hmm. of storytelling. Um, last controversial thing I'll say about writing. Um, <laughs> it's his own damn fault. Uh, he shouldn't have lied to the American people and he doesn't deserve to be president and he, like he's great and he does a great job and he's our hero and everything mm-hmm. but the, he's also so fucking entitled. He's so entitled. I deserve, like why should you be, like when you're going, he's going through the numbers, it's like yes, that's a great moment and all except that it's like oh, all this stuff needs to get done and it has to be me who does it because anybody else wouldn't do a good job because I, therefore I need to do it because I'm so great. Um, so, Yes, I think as a fan of the show and the character, I'm on board. He is that great. But it also, he's just like, mm-hmm. especially rewatching mm-hmm. now, I was like, there's so much entitlement. So but white, do you not white think like, that that's intentional? That he is mm-hmm. written to be a oh, yeah. entitled kid? So it's not like yeah. you're pointing out, like, I don't think the show is unaware of that. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think and any human being who has been the president is an entitled yes, you have motherfucker. To, to, like, yes. you don't you have to the president think you of the want United to be, you States could be president. you don't think you're the best person alive. So to some extent, I feel like that is the heart of the show and that's mm-hmm. the heart of the flashbacks too it's like mm-hmm. yeah Jed is a little entitled prick and Miss yeah. Landingham mm-hmm. is like how about you use your little entitlement for yeah. good rather yeah. than yeah. whatever you're doing now it's also the thing that they deal with in like the first th- through HCon 172 right like the yeah. first mm-hmm. six or seven episodes of season three yeah. um, not counting Isaac and Ishmael which <laughs> yeah, let's Oof. not count that but I also think there's something interesting that's linked to Leo's faith in the president where he is special. He is somehow a person who is driven by ego, but is moral enough and grounded enough and who knows how to surround himself with the right people so that he is the kind of person we want to be president, even with those flaws, so that you get Hoynes, John Hoynes, who is like not a total garbage human, Mm -hmm. like sort of a garbage human and does some things that are, but is, but is a very typical politician, Mm -hmm. Uh, not unsympathetic, but a very typical politician. That's like when he says you get Hoynes, that means you get what everybody else is. Like I have given enough and you get Hoynes and it's (laughs) incredibly egocentric, but also accurate. I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, of course he would make it about himself. I mean, this sure. is this is how He's the fucking president of the United States. Exactly. <laughs> like, how can you not? Exactly. And so when he hears, for example, going back to the numbers, it's just one of those things where for for as egocentric as it is, he doesn't trust other people to handle it the way he feels they should be handled, which I think to a certain extent we all would relate to. I think we all have this specific idea of how we how we think society should be run. And so he just happens to have like that power to do it. You know what's it. interesting? Your point about Mrs. Lanningham being his Jiminy Cricket is that from this point in the series, it becomes Toby, right? Like mm-hmm. Toby becomes his killjoy who tells mm-hmm. him things he doesn't want to hear. Um, up to the point where they make a, like a really bad decision about his character that I think really harms the series in its mm-hmm. final seasons. But specifically in season three, there's a lot of him like poking him, saying, you can be better, you can do more. And it really bothers him. No. But he ultimately ends up making, for the most part, the right choices. Well, let's talk about performances. To start off with performances, I will entirely agree with something Kate said, that I do really think that every character, particularly the White House staff, maybe less so than Bartlett and Leo, but the rest of the staff are all written identically. Like on the page, I don't think there's, unless there's a really specific story like CJ getting mad about 
women being mistreated some somewhere or something like that. But for the most part, they are written identically. And it is such a testament to these performers that they feel like entirely different people. And mm-hmm. that I think you really, as great as the writing is, you have to put that entirely on the backs of these actors that they mm-hmm. can take this very, very similar dialogue. And to me, create distinct characters where I feel like, yeah, that's how CJ would respond. That's how Josh would respond or whatever. Uh, I think on the most obvious level, this is the Martin Sheen showcase episode. So he, that's just like a blanket statement that he is really great. Um, But otherwise I think that the other big showcases are the actors in the flashback, mostly Kirsten Nelson and also like Lawrence O'Donnell giving an incredible performance. Like, yeah, he's actually really good. For someone who's so reluctant to take it. MSNBC, like it's crazy where he's not as good. (laughs) I don't, yeah, he's not quite as believable. He really isn't. Yeah. He just, sorry. It's just whatever. Yeah. No, no No, fake news here. He's Lawrence O'Donnell's not as good. (laughs) He's not as good. He is giving a great performance. And he Mm -hmm. said in the interview on the West Wing Weekly that he grew up in a very working class Boston area and he said that reading this father he thought oh this is the nicest father I've ever seen (laughs) and so he chose to play this like yeah hitting your son once that's like it's only once and actually that's what makes the character so terrifying is the fact that it's not like oh I'm building up to this emotional moment where I'm hitting my son it's like very casual about it yeah routine um, and then I think uh, not enough can be said about how well Kirsten Nelson does the channels Mrs. Landingham without doing like an impersonation yeah. of her. Uh, but then I think also performance wise, just as always, kudos to the whole cast who I think can do so much with so little. Uh, I really like Allison Janney in this episode and her choice to have CJ is like the calmest one of them all yeah. in dealing with this crisis and the most sort of like, well, this is what it is. So I'm going to make some wry jokes about it and move on and I think that contrasts really well with actually Rob Lowe in both this and 18th and Potomac I think Sam is usually the idealist and the one that's I don't know the happy-go-lucky one and this sort of crisis and I guess just the general crisis of Bartlett lying like it almost affects him more than anyone else he's Mm -hmm. so sour about it yeah in a way that's totally earned yeah Yeah, I agree and there's one moment where he's like they're sort of cutting him off and he's like, I want to say this again. And they're like, why? And he's like, cause I work here like everyone else. Can I help you? And the way he's, it's like shocking how <laughs> yep. cruel he is, but I think it feels earned because he is, yeah. the show is not saying that's a good way for him to behave, mm. but the show right. is saying like, yeah, this is a believable way someone in a crisis would respond. I also kind of felt like that line was a little bit of a weird meta dig at Sam getting less screen time than he sure. thought he was going to be <laughs> given, like given when the West Wing started, he was basically ostensibly going to yeah. be the lead until it, he morphed into more of a part of an ensemble. But I know, I agree that like uh, Allison Janney and Rob Lowe really sell that idea of like, especially in this episode of in the midst of crisis, like this White House still has to keep going and they still have to deal with all these other problems. Well, I mean, I guess Sam is, is dealing with the Democratic strategists and I actually really love his his rejoinder at the end of that where I was like, no, he's not a candidate. He's the president. It's tough to really single them out for being these particularly exceptional performances when they're just so great across the board. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, they, they they put in really really good turns in this episode, especially in the the limited screen time they have since it is such the Martin Sheen show. Yeah. I have always been really partial to um, exchange that Josh and CJ have in the hallway yeah. about mm. um, the statement about the tobacco industry, right? Um, And she gets to the end of his firebrand speech and says, um, filling their campaign war chests, like it's poetry. Mm. This is like the fire we used to throw in the early primaries. The pause she has before that is so And she's just looking at him 
let it, it's just beautiful and then he says let Bartlett be Bartlett and then there's this huge pause and everybody watching goes because that's such a good episode <laughs> and then she says you have to put it away for a while and the way that Bradley Whitford says you think you just know yeah. and he couldn't have known what was coming in the beginning of season three right mm-hmm. like he couldn't have known that he would ultimately end up leaking it and fucking them all over but you can tell that he's gonna leak it anyway just from the way he says you think Hades gonna be bumped to the lifestyle section it's a I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm very partial to that little exchange. The second thing I wrote in my notes is, Nelson Jenny's so good. She's yeah. so yeah. good. Flashback-wise, what are we thinking? How are you guys doing? We, I know we talked writing-wise, like how they yeah. fit in, but performance-wise, I feel like we're all in agreement that those are yeah. relatively solid performances. Yeah, I, I think, think we had some issues with great. young Jed, right? I have a couple. I'm glad that he's not trying to do a Martin Sheen impression, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's a bad performance by any means. And mm-hmm. I also think that those scenes are supposed to be about... Kirsten Nelson and and not really, that's yeah. who we're supposed to be focused on. It's the way it's filmed. Like she is the focus in most of those shots, and it's like like such a delight <laughs> yeah. that it's hard to focus on anything else. But I, I mean, I think that she's exceptional. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I went back and checked, and she was not fucking nominated for an Emmy for this episode. No. And I think that is a travesty. No, Jason Widener gave me like young Bob Benson vibes a little bit. Ah. Like a tiny bit in terms of just being that like perfect 60s kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also very Dead Poet Society, which makes sense because that's where they filmed Dead Poet Society. Yeah. That same oh, location. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, Kirsten Nelson. Amazing. Agreed. Oh, Kirsten, my so, Kirsten. So I guess the, the biggest performance then is Martin Sheen, which maybe we can transition to talk about that. Mm-hmm. What I really love about this is you you definitely get the big like quote unquote Oscar worthy or in this case Emmy worthy moments where he's railing or whatever. And Martin Sheen does those very well. But I really like the moments where he pulls back a little bit. Specifically, mm-hmm. Allison, you mentioned the line that was my son about Josh. And I think it would be easy to make that like that was my son. Like, you know, like a- yeah. anger in that specific line. But it's almost like innocence in the way he says it. Like, that was my son. Like, how could you possibly do that? And I think he does that throughout. There's moments where Charlie's like, the White House is sometimes a wind tunnel if the right doors are open. He's like, no kidding. And he's really like, there's an innocence and a softness about him. And that contrasting with the, as we mentioned, like insane entitlement that the character has, (laughs) both young and in the present day. But I think that Martin Sheen finds the moments of softness that, to some extent are written into the text and to some extent are just performance choices. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what makes Bartlett feel like a more complex character than just this like egotistical educated man. And I mean, he's also a man in mourning, not just for Mrs. Landingham, but in a lot of respects, possibly for his presidency. Mm -hmm. I think because he's definitely facing the beginning of the end and he's facing this dilemma about whether or not he should try again, especially in the wake of, revealing to the public that he lied to them. So yes, that decision to do that, it comes from a sense of entitlement, but I think the journey to get there, mm-hmm. Martin Sheen, that pulling back, I think you see that explored in his eyes and his face, especially when they're, we'll get into this in cinematography and the and the direction and everything, they're panning across his face as they're transitioning to the flashbacks. You see him deep in thought. And even just those little tiny moments are really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I really love the nonverbal work that he does mm-hmm. on the walk, from the Oval Office to the car and then in the car and there's this great shot where a janitor picks up the cigarette and looks out the door of National Cathedral right as he looks into it. At least that's what we're meant to believe in the editing. And then he gets there. He hears CJ one more time say on the right, right, on your right. Mm -hmm. And then he stands there and kind of looks around and then asks the question and then says, I'm sorry, there was a bit of noise. (laughs) (laughs) And then he does the, puts his hands in his pockets, looks away and smiles. And it's that... I think that might actually be my favorite Martin Sheen moment in the episode. And he has never looked more like 
his son Emilio Estevez than he does with the little wet hair with yeah. the sort of yeah. like <laughs> little, yep. little bit sticking up. <laughs> uh, Charlie hands him a towel. Yes, yeah. he's oh, all damp. Right. Okay, so to be a uh, difficult, annoying <laughs> person mm. of the room again, he would look terrible on TV like that. That would be something they would not just let him. They go would on not let him go soaked. on like yeah, rain soaked and like <laughs> like and like imagine the news cycle now. It, imagine the news cycle five years ago. Yeah. Or yeah, 10 yeah, years right. ago, don't imagine it now. Uh, if the president <laughs> walked up on stage, soaked wet, and then wandered around and couldn't hear the audience and seemed like he couldn't like process what was com- right. happening, and then waited forever to slowly put his hands in his pockets and then turn. And then, like, yeah. The realism yeah, but it's is, Greek. is yeah. It's yeah. Fu- yeah. It, like, it's fucking Eskimo. It's an epic, yeah. Well, and, and I do, I, I, like, yes, that's why I'm saying being pedantic it's and not, stupid. It is not but. Aeschylus. It's Euripides. I'm sorry. No, it's, yeah. not. it's not. Uh, it's apologies, Euripidean. No. It's, but I do it like the, the wet hair <laughs> yeah. for, for that. I was just like, can you just be less? less no, it does feel yeah. like the end of this episode just almost becomes magical realism yeah. to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flag. The flag. <laughs> um, for me, like you already kind of mentioned, Allison, um, the the Sheen stuff that I love, and this I'll talk about later when we get to you know later another topic we're going to talk about is how still and how quiet it is, mm-hmm. and how wonderful is it to watch unfortunately fictional president be able to be lost completely in thought while also following everything that's happening in the conversations around him. And that's I miss I miss that in our fictional just, TV presidents. Let's yeah. just leave it there. Yeah, that yep. sounds good. And I guess the one performance and we've we've praised her before, but just to praise her again within mm-hmm. this performance section is of course Catherine Justin. And I do think you're right, Kate. Her the moment she shows up is so much more impactful because she's been missing before then. And it and it does feel like her death at the end of 18th Potomac is just such a surprise. Like it doesn't even feel like in any way the episode is leading up to that. And there is a sense where you're like, oh my God, I didn't even realize her last scene was going to be her last scene. And you as an audience are almost panicking that like you didn't get to properly say goodbye. And I think it's a smart choice to bring her back to let us say that goodbye and to give Catherine Drewston sort of like her mm-hmm. her last big her Ta-da best scene moment. in the series too, which is not to say she doesn't yeah. have other great scenes, but and it's not her last scene because when we flash back, yeah, she pops up as like a cameo. Yeah, when they flash back to uh, Leo talking Jed into running, which is I think in season three, it's when Leo is being uh, is testifying before Congress. Might be. Uh, who cares? Season three, so. or season it's, four. Yeah, uh, it's when he writes "Let Bartlett be Bartlett" on the napkin and whatever. Um, one of the times he does that. Anyway, mm. but it's her. Be- I think her best scene in the series. Uh, well, speaking of Mrs. Landingham, uh, we should transition into. Yeah. Oh, I got the one of the most exciting things that happened to me this week. Uh, to that both of really us, cool. uh, we got to interview Kirsten Nelson, uh, who played the young Mrs. Landingham. As we mentioned before, gave a fantastic performance and gave us a fantastic interview. We'll play a little snippet here, but we'll play. We'll do a bonus episode a few days later, uh, featuring pretty much the interview in full. The whole thing was gold. She has she had such wonderful erudite things to say about not just oh, and she her. She kept things. dropping into the voice, and every time <laughs> oh, it was I just great. lost my mind a little. She's a, she's a fellow Chicagoan, so that's all. That was also we connected over that. Yeah, and also uh, my love of Psych bled into the conversation a little bit, which I was very happy about. Yeah, she teased another Psych movie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. uh, so here is Kirsten Nelson, and we will be back shortly after that with some other shit. I loved her so. I want to ask about that um, speech, the sort of big moment in the episode. It's one of, 
three sort of major emotional climaxes, that being the first, the second being the big speech to God. I guess four, because then he also has that really wonderful scene with um, Mrs. Landingham in the office and then obviously the conclusion of the episode. Um, I think it's such a gorgeous piece of writing and it is odd to play a moment that's obviously formative for another character it's you can trace everything that jed bartlett does and the choices he makes back to this moment and we don't see it until the end of season two how did you go about preparing that scene and um and what was your reaction when you first read it everything was very close to the best they really did not want anything to leak about this episode. Thank goodness it was before, you know, social media and all of the, um, the internet, um, you know, leaks that we would have even now, uh, that no one wanted this storyline to get out. So when I read it, um, first of all, I was shocked that they had killed her, (laughs) that they had killed Miss Lanningham. Um, but Reading what they had done and reading how they had laid the pieces, almost like this Bible, to where this man became, um, where he was going to be at the end of this episode, making that decision to run, to put his hands in his pocket and smile. Um, It gave me chills. And that struggle of not knowing what to do and wanting somebody to give you the answer, even from an external source so that you can find it within yourself to have the confidence to make a big decision. And it doesn't have to be, am I going to run for president? And maybe it's just something, you know, a life decision of, do I take the, this road or do I take that road? That, and that Jeb had to go to God to struggle and yell at him. And you just sometimes need to sound it out like a sounding board. Um, He had all these other influences in his life and that he had to go rail in a church at someone who, if we, you know, if we say that God is a someone, he rails at someone who he loves and who he challenges and challenges him in order to find that answer. And that was um, so powerful. You know, reading this stuff, even on an airplane, you know, going to set because they had to fly us. I live in L.A., fly us from L.A. to D.C. um, to be at the National Cathedral. It was wonderful and it was chilling. And personally, um, my dad uh, is a pastor, so I grew up surrounded by this stuff. Um, And... It was like I knew that guy. I knew what he was going through, what that struggle was. And uh, what Mrs. Lanningham could offer him was just, I'll wait. You'll figure this out. Um, so it was that quiet contemplation. But I think he needed to have a strong backbone. God, uh, well, I got chills just listening to you talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Kirsten Nelson. 
I'm pretending like we listened to that when in reality we just stopped for a second. We talked about some other Aaron Sorkin things. We didn't listen to it. We lived it. We did. Well, we did live it. Um, So we're going to do our final two categories, which are in the case of the West Wing, slightly less important, but I think still worth talking about. The first, I'm going to kick it over to Clint for a little discussion of the direction cinematography. And I do think there are some fucking gorgeous moments in this episode. And I was surprised how good it looks for a show that's, you know, over an episode of television that's over 15 years old at this point. Two Cathedrals, I think in a lot of respects is, you know, more or less an unremarkable episode of the West Wing in that it looks as good as most other episodes of the West Wing. It was directed by Thomas Schlamme and was shot by Thomas Del Ruth, the two Tommies. <laughs> but I think they do an exceptionally good job elevating those more, um, those more ambitious and more magical realist sort of moments everything shot in that national cathedral like they really managed to sell the size of it um like there's that exchange early on before they go there with between uh jed and charlie who uh you know jed says you know you can lay the washington monument down on its side in that church and he's like we should try it actually (laughs) we should try it (laughs) they managed to sell that size the majesty and the grandeur of this cathedral like not, not just from the outside but from the inside as well especially the way they shoot that speech with that low angle up to up to Jed just looking up and talking up to God and I don't know just capturing that scale and the scope of of the drama of what's happening in that moment through the cinematography and especially making use of such a great location I think is fantastic but otherwise it's shot as well as most other West Wing episodes are especially the scenes in the West Wing where you know all the walk and talks are done uh, to a point but then there's also those wonderful moments like the storm and that final shot, the spinning around of Jed as he's looking off to the side and smiling. And I don't know, those moments are really, really great, but uh, I think they, they serve to accentuate the writing and the performances more than anything. And I think, so Tommy Shlami directed the pilot and was like very, very, I think he was like a pretty much a house director for West Wing. Yeah. yeah, And was very big in setting the aesthetic of the show, but I believe he had not directed an episode sort of himself recently before this one like I think this was a little bit I think he was still involved but this was a little bit him I could be wrong but I think he was this was a little bit him coming back into the director's chair and you can tell they always bring back like the in shows they always tend to bring back like the pilot director for like big episodes like this it's just a impeccably shot episode of the West Wing He's also directing my pick for next week. We'll get to there. Really? Um, I'm I'm checking this. So he directed 14 episodes of The West Wing. Mm-hmm. Um, he also directed Noel. Yeah. So he in season two directed four episodes. They are the best, with the possible exception of 17 people, which I legitimately think is pretty much perfect. He directed the four best episodes of season two, which are In the Shadow of Two Gunmen, Parts 1 and 2, Noel, and Two Cathedrals. He also directed the two-parter that kicks off season three, Manchester, Parts 1 and 2. He directed Bartlett for America, which is the episode where Leo testifies to Congress. He directed We Killed Yamamoto, which is, I believe, the season four finale, might be the season three finale, when they go to see the play Mm -hmm. and when Mm -hmm. CJ's Secret Service agent gets killed. And um, and Holy Night, which is another Christmas episode, Mm -hmm. in case you couldn't tell by the title. (laughs) But it definitely does feel, I think, you can sort of feel like a, a... TV director will set the tone and all the other directors follow it and usually do it very well. Like you said, all the episodes of the West Wing are really well shot. But then mm-hmm. you can all you can feel like the person comes back and it's a little bit like, let's reset it and let's like push <laughs> push the edge a little bit. Cause I'm the you know, I have he kind of has the freedom to push it if he wants to in a way that probably yeah. a 
director that's just coming in for an episode doesn't. And I, the thing, the visual to me that sticks out is always the montage at the end where mm-hmm. just like the, and Allison mentioned this before, but the moment where the, the janitor sort of picking up the cigarette and we cut to Bartlett. Yeah, and the way that, um, that that's lit too is the lighting unique is for beautiful. West Wing. There's a moment I think where you sort of see the police uh, motorcade sort of coming up over a hill a little bit, like sort of emerging. Just that whole final montage I think is beautifully, and that's also an editing thing, but beautifully mm. constructed, beautifully shot, and more into that sort of magical realism quality yeah, yeah, yeah. that is fairly unique for this episode. No, and one other shot that stuck out to me or series of shots, just everything about the funeral itself, the way, the way they sort of slowly pan around uh, Charlie's he's doing the reading, but one particular series of shots that stood out to me is when they're doing like the profiles of everybody yeah, and you see it like rack focusing from face to face. Yeah. The best one is when it's, uh, Donna mm-hmm. to Carol and to Margaret, Margaret right? yeah. yeah, and ending on Margaret, just like that. Mm-hmm. Oh. You get a brief moment of studying each of their faces, and yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. And that moment's great too because w- the episode, as written, there's not a lot of dialogue. Where mostly we're focusing on how Bartlett is processing Mrs. Landingham's death, mm-hmm. but there, just that single shot, it just reminds you that, like, yeah, Mrs. Landingham was probably. The assistant of assistants among all of the assistants of the West Wing. And so seeing Margaret and Donna and Carol, it's like, yeah, they presumably had their own relationships with her that happened off screen. And just seeing their faces, it just like implies a whole other story that we're not seeing. And I think that that's a powerful reminder of how much visuals can do when maybe there isn't space for the episode itself or the dialogue to handle that. Yeah, Presumably they, poor Ginger is, yeah. is yeah. She's holding still the candle yeah. for everybody else. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it's just so great that a show like The West Wing doesn't have to rest on its laurels of like the main draw, right, which is the Aaron Sorkin writing and the performances. Like it also feels the need to step up to the plate and deliver a great looking episode of television too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's important to also keep in mind that the director also is helping them with their performances. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's part of why you can, there are certain shows and certain directors that you can tell when a given director is back because the, just the performances are tweaked that much more. <laughs> that Outlander. Little, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> that little bit better. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I um, also, I just love to continue talking about that final montage because I just can't stop. Um, you'd think that if there were more than one shot of the American flag waving in the storm, that it would be too much. And yet (laughs) it's not. Um, It's a good example, I think, of earning your grandiosity and then like going for it because you can. Totally. Because the first one is perfect. And the second one you think would be too much. And yet it's not. Oh, man. But that watch this is one of my favorite moments in all of the West Wing. Mm -hmm. One of those great. It's a great marriage of writing and performance and direction and music. <laughs> Cut to. Is that a good transition? Are we I done agree. talking about direction so much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kate? The West Wing has uh, you know, W. Snuffer Walden does the music, uh, a lot of the music, I should say. And certainly that sound that we think of for the West Wing is, is all him. And um, my memory of the show, because again, it's been a while since I watched a bunch of it, is that there's a lot of scoring. And it's it's very present. It's orchestral. And obviously they have the brass through and the full orchestra, but the brass is what you think of for the um the credit sequence and that's you know it's just like a shortcut in scoring for heroic for um certainly like nationalism that kind of thing it ties into a military history of in scoring with like brass and horns being like you know trumpets and and 
and just being part of military scoring. You know, you have your drummers, you have your maybe you have some like pipes or fifes or something like that. If you're an outlander, you have bagpipes, and um, if you you know you have horns. Um, you get horns. You get horns. So you, well, which is why you watch any of the, um, <laughs> you watch any of the the like Captain America movies, any of the sure. superhero. The, it's all it's all horns and, and fourths and fifths. Um, but um, this one, I was very surprised, and this ties into sort of my overall reaction to the episode that there's very little music. They use silence very effectively, and because in my memory, at least, um, it's a very scoring forward kind of show that is like that restraint i really really appreciated and it, it just i thought there was a thread throughout the whole episode where um my like it didn't have those moments of really hard on your sleeve big emotion big sweeping camera moves but you know like, like show baby yeah mm-hmm. it's not ostentatious yeah and that if, if they had done much more scoring at all it would have trod all over everything and they they, the the show this episode really lets the performances and the stillness and the silence and again the space and loss that so many people fear uh, feel when a loved one is gone um just take over um and set the tone and the mood for everything i was surprised rewatching this episode how subdued everything was and it's absolutely fitting and so then when they do go for these bigger, more emotional moments towards the end of the episode, there's some scoring, but it's not a lot. It's just your standard, you know, orchestral thing. Like when when um, we meet Mrs. Landingham in the past, um, the orchestra comes more forward. It's very warm and sunny to to you know kind of ma- marry her and the the outdoor like the weather and everything of that, mm-hmm. which contrasts very much with what we're seeing in the rest of the episode. The it's pretty much all the scoring we do get is minor. It's orchestral. Um, uh, with some like some woodwinds and occasionally they they bring the horn in depending on the on the like the scene and everything but really it's it's a lot of woodwinds and and strings and very low lots of held pitches to build you know sustained notes building dread or um just suspense but yeah and then of course the end we have instead of going orchestral they use dire straits brothers in arms which is a very specific choice i'm not you know i'm the i'm the orchestral musician i'm not i don't know pop music so i imagine y'all have thoughts on that but that's you know and that's rare for the West Wing, right? Very rare. It happens every once in a while. It happens at the end of 12 hours in America, 14 hours in America, whatever 20 it is. hours, I think. 20, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the opener to season four. Mm-hmm. And um, that uh, ends with a cover of... But for the most part, yeah, they don't they do not do a lot in the way of They also do it in Somebody Going to Emergency, Somebody yes. Going to Jail, which is named for the song, which is an episode it's like a sam centered episode mm-hmm. i don't really like that episode and i don't like the use of that song in Me there neither. so i always get nervous when mm-hmm. pop comes into the west wing i'm like no no no, no. this is not what i want <laughs> this from isn't the show. Grace. They know it's like, and i think that this is like a real great perfect. exception because i think that this song is really perfect and goes for that quality we keep talking about like magical realism or the ending just feeling like different than what we're used to on the west wing and i think that's a case where Sometimes the pop music choices can feel a little arbitrary, and this one feels like we intentionally want this to feel different, so we have selected a pop song to help mm-hmm. us do that. I'm not a Dire Straits fan, so I don't know like where this song fits in their discography, but I've always found it a really effective choice. And it w- very jarring, even knowing that that was coming, in rewatching it, I 
was startled by it again because it's mm-hmm. an unusual thing for the show. Absolutely. Like when it pops up, you notice it. Just to go outside the scope of this specific episode for a real second, while we're on the subject of music, there is one thing about the West Wing's music that always struck me as interesting. And I wonder if anyone else has had this feeling. Is anyone else occasionally jarred by how chipper the end oh, credits yes, music is? all the time. Right? Time. Yeah. But it sounds like a Beethoven movie. I like, believe that. But the, the movie about the dog. That Snuffy <laughs> yeah. Walden, wait, that's the same. Yeah. 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 That he has said that they just sort of arbitrarily picked that for when it was on TV, it didn't matter because the episode would end, it would go to commercial and you would come back to the credits. So mm-hmm. you weren't, it wasn't connected. Like, yeah. And now he really regrets it because for Netflix, it pops up immediately and it's like, like someone really someone's died. The, and a, ba, 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 yeah. yeah. End of 18th and Potomac. No, she's dead. I'm glad I'm not alone. No, you're definitely not. And I just to point out how much on the West Wing, everything goes back to writing on this show. Like we complimented the shot of of Donna and Margaret and um, Carol sitting in the in the funeral together, but that's written in the script. Like we had at least the script that was available online for this episode that I believe is like the shooting script they used. Um, if it's not, somebody faked a great yeah. shooting yeah. script <laughs> because it's very specific in the way that it's structured. And specifically yeah. the Dire Straits song, that was not like a oh, we, in post we need a, we want a good song. That Aaron Sorkin wrote the scene around the song. Like the song is in the script and he's spoken to this too and that he was slightly nervous that he was just like handing over the end of the second season of The West Wing to Dire Straits and being like, eh, you guys deal with this. But that he very specifically <laughs> like... the built the end of the season around that song so even in that case as much as it is a music choice Mm -hmm. it also is a writing choice Mm -hmm. and sort of trying to tie i think the song itself is about someone dying in the falkland wars i believe so Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily like literally translate to what's happening but i do think that they try to find resonance in the it's the way it's the way that songs can resonate in so many different ways it doesn't have to be what the literal meaning was and i'm glad they didn't pick something quite so literal too because that that could backfire a lot of times where it's a it's a song about a president not being sure if he's gonna run for a second (laughs) yeah uh yeah i mean i i guess i've always accepted it because of charlie taking his coat off yeah (laughs) like it's just Uh like that's brothers and arms to me yeah yeah. and well and watching them all walk out together knowing how angry so many of them were and how Mm -hmm. betrayed they felt and it's obvious that doesn't go away that's a huge part of the beginning of season three but that um a sense of unity and Mm -hmm. um fear and then ultimately exhilaration because again that comes into play at the beginning of season three yeah well apparently snuffy walden in an interview said that the piece was about rising uh, rising above something for self and doing something for the collective which also matches the scene with mrs landingham where it's like oh we need to do this to make america better i stopped myself (laughs) you think think you're gonna lose well god jed i don't even want to know you um the last thing that i'll mention uh because i'm a music is uh, I appreciate I don't I couldn't figure out what the specific organ pieces were during the funeral um, I think what's a Bach suite but um, or prelude um, or sorry fugue prelude and fugue anyways um, but tune fine doesn't go back that far ladies and gentlemen and, and Shazam was being difficult uh, it couldn't make up its mind um, but you know the, obviously the, the pipe organ um, 
called the instrument of life because it constantly you keep the wind going through the bellows right so you can hold a note forever with it um it, there's you know textual things you can take with that some textual things you can take with that as far as like at a funeral you have the instrument of life but i think it, that's not why it's used it's used because it is a cathedral and pipe organ seems appropriate and boxing's appropriate um but the other thing that is great about that is because the other like you think what well what else would they use that's perfect they also could have used voice. They also could have used mm-hmm. like uh, mm-hmm. there's lots of other things they could have used. Um, and I like the choice to to keep with organ because while it is the instrument of life in theory, it also it, it there's a distance and a remove. Um, you don't hear organ on the show usually mm-hmm. um, from my memory, at least. And I, I like that there's no words because if there are words, th- there would be in Latin. And then th- <laughs> yeah. that would tip. Don't take away from oh, all good observation. Oh, oh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> so. Anyways, <laughs> it's it beautiful. They wouldn't mind. have to be in Len, but they, they would if you wanted to match right. the aesthetic of everything else. Sure. So. Yeah. Oh, that's great. What an episode, guys. It's real good. Yeah. <laughs> it's real good. It's real, real um, good. Do, before we go to our picks for next week, closing mm-hmm. thoughts about two cathedrals? I don't know if it's my personal favorite episode of The West Wing, but I think as a tribute to the show at its best, like it's an excellent pick, and I understand why it's regularly like highlighted as one of the best ever. Like I said before, I do think it's an episode that works better with the context of the season around it than mm-hmm. it does just if you're just sitting at home and you're like, I want to revisit the West Wing, which episode should I pop on? I'm not yeah. sure this one is actually the best choice. And in fact, I don't think all time great episodes usually yeah. are the best choice no. for one mm-hmm. to just like, pop on. Who's like, I'm going to watch one episode of Breaking Bad. How about Mandy? Right. Yeah. right. Like, no. <laughs> it's clearly a fly. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't call it my favorite episode of the West Wing ever, but I do think that it might be the best episode of the West yeah, Wing. Yeah, that's kind of, I think um, that's what I was trying to inelegantly get at. Certainly the yes. most ambitious episode of yes. the West mm-hmm. Wing. And it's tough to strike that balance too in an age of serialized television too, where, where every episode to a certain extent for a lot of shows depends on that extra context of episodes that you haven't watched if you're just turning that on. So. Sure. Yeah. So I, th- I think even within that context, it still works as a piece of drama. Like I watched most of the West Wing, I think up until like early season six. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hadn't watched it for years, but I just turned on to cathedrals for this episode. Like and I, I watched it twice this week leading up to it just because mm-hmm. I was like, I think it for me, it still worked as an isolated episode of television. I the previous on does enough work for me. Yeah. I went back and watched from the Stackhouse filibuster on. So when we talked to Kirsten, I had rewatched Two Cathedrals, and then I put it on again with just the subtitles so that I could do other things and like glance up and whatever. Yeah. And then I yesterday watched uh, the Stackhouse fil- filibuster through Two Cathedrals, mm-hmm. um, so that I could sort of go on that whole ride again. And you're absolutely right that as a culmination of that arc, that's really what makes it great. Um, And that is a part of the way that we consume stories on television, Mm -hmm. right? A a lot, not all, but a lot of the great shows manage to make great episodic television that's also great serialized television. And The West Wing does a season-long, if not seasons-long arc (laughs) every year that it's on. Um, by the way, Clint, you should totally finish it. There are lots I, of flaws. Yeah, season seven's I, I good. To, yeah. There are flaws, but God, there are some really good things. No, and I, some I totally like agree. fan servicey things that are still totally swoon worthy. Mm-hmm. And it's Well, honestly, I feel like at this point it's been so long that I would just have to start it from the beginning, but I oh guess that's no. not a bad thing. That's a treat. <laughs> <laughs> a treat. <laughs> Lucky you. I know. What a burden. Are we are we moving on? I think I we think are. I think we should. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we've we've talked about two cathedrals for I think three six Days. cathedrals worth of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Clint, take us away. All right. So what are our picks for next week, Caroline? 
So I wanted to do something that would honor the spirit of the West Wing, particularly the spirit of the massive nerd that is President Bartlett, who just loves learning as much as I do. So I actually wanted to talk about and express my excitement for this YouTube channel called Crash Course, mm -hmm. which is an created by John and Hank Green, who are big in the YouTube space. And it is just a free educational YouTube channel. What they do is multiple ongoing series that are looking at everything from statistics to film history to sociology and physics and government and world history and economics and chemistry, any sort of like topic that you learned about in school and have since forgotten about and would like to sort of revisit. They do these really great series where the videos are about 10 to 15 minutes. Each one is of a slightly different specific topic, but within that ongoing series. The two that I am currently following and that are my picks for next week, one is about the history of science. So it's just going back and saying, hey, here's what the ancient Greeks did. Here's what the ancient um, people in ancient China did. Here is, you know, what Newton did in case you've forgotten all of these things. It's very accessible. <laughs> it's the sort of thing that could be great for kids learning for this learning this for the first time or adults who are wanting to revisit this. The other one I'm really enjoying is an ongoing series on media literacy, which is designed to sort of like help in this fake news era, um, particularly for people that maybe aren't super social media literate, uh, just to educate them about that. So along with the return of Westworld, that's my sort of non-TV pick is this YouTube series. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, Allison, what's your pick for next week? My pick is the next episode of The Americans, which I have not seen yet. I fell into the like screener's hole and watched a bunch <laughs> of them before the series premiered, but did not get to this one yet. It is called The Great Patriotic War. It is directed mm. by Thomas Schlamme. Mm, little Thomas um, Schlamme. Nice. I'm super excited. And it's a Kimmy episode. Uh, which makes me terrified because every time the Americans go anywhere near Kimmy, I just get fucking afraid for her <laughs> and everyone. Like, really, I get really, really nervous for basically everyone involved. So I'm really, I know nothing about it other uh, than that it's a Kimmy episode and I'm I'm really looking forward to it. That's not the right term. I'm dreading it in a way that I'm supposed to dread it. Yeah. Uh, I have a secondary pick, which I learned about today, <laughs> Woo! which is that Janelle Monet has a new album coming out this week called Dirty Computer. And she posted yesterday that MTV and BET will be airing her, quote, emotion picture <laughs> in its entirety on the day of the album's release. So Dirty Computer... Emotion picture, MTV and BET. I cannot wait. <laughs> oh, starring Tessa oh. Thompson. I should add, if you haven't right, seen right, any right. of her videos, yeah, it's the whole thing is Janelle Monae and Tessa Thompson. Yeah, I hope they <laughs> never um, yum, like yum, officially yum. come out as a couple, and I'm, we just I'm, like yum, have yum, to yum, know. Yum, 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 yum. Yes, uh, Kate, what are your picks? Well, this week we had the finales of Black Lightning and the Rundown with Robin Thede, and I'm sure there were other ones that aired. The fabulous, both fabulous, but um, that means that there in, in my head, in my brain, like like oh, I'm set those shows go. Oh, but there's new shows to distract me, shiny shows, and um, Into the Badlands <laughs> is coming back, and I've seen the first season, but not the second season. But I think I'm gonna just dive in with the season three premiere because. Everything, everybody tells me that second season was better than the first season. And it's just awesome to watch badass fight scenes. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's great to have a badass genre show with an Asian 
uh, lead, yeah. lead, male lead of, of Asian descent. So so I know people are very excited about that. So th- that's the main thing for me. But also Archer Danger Island is coming back, and I always can have more <laughs> more Pam in my life and everybody else too. So I'm looking for sure, forward to for that. Sure. I love how high concept they've been going with their last few seasons. Like they yeah. just basically alternate realities every season which is fantastic so my pick i'm going to be the broken record and keep talking about the expanse especially because <laughs> Bless. Uh, yes right especially because it's on the bubble and i'm really worried about it and i love it because it's one of my favorite shows um i'm going to talk about the the next uh, next week's episode which is the third episode of the third season assured destruction the reason it's notable for me is that it combines two storylines that from the beginning of the show have been pretty separate. I mean, it's kind of like Game of Thrones in that there's a bunch of differing storylines, but occasionally characters will meet up. And this time at the end of the last episode, we teased that at the end of the episode, um, two groups of major characters have joined up where there's the crew of the Rosinante, uh, the, the sort of the hero ship of the show. And then also Shori Agdashu's character, the, uh, the foul mouthed uh, hero bureaucrat of earth of Asarala. She has escaped to, with information about like, you know, all the, this new war that's happened between Mars and earth and everything. Everything. And at the very end of the episode, she and her Martian bodyguard, Bobby Draper. Um, <laughs> so this is the second show in as many weeks featuring a character named Bobby Draper that we've talked about. They have met up. And so I'm looking forward to that dynamic actually coming to fruition in this new episode because it, they just met up in the op- in the closing shot of the last episode. So I'm really looking forward to some of my fan favorite characters from the Rosinante, Shory Agdashley, who's fantastic in the show, just butting heads and uh, offering a new dynamic. And please watch the show or please order the season on iTunes because I want it to keep going, please. And thank you. Uh, don't let it get canceled. We've now switched our cancellation bubble fears from one day at a time to the expanse. Yes. And iZombie, I think. Please also watch iZombie. Yes. All, both those shows should continue to yeah. have lives. Well, Elizabeth Mitchell just showed up, right? Yes. And David Strathairn is going to show up in season three. So, genre fans, you know you like those guys. Right. Shots fired. He's the best. Exactly. <laughs> He's so good. I mean, so is she. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I and love the, Elizabeth Mitchell. And Elizabeth Missile, Mitchell just showed up. Elizabeth Missile. Um, <laughs> whoops. Uh, that's the wartime version. Um, no, and she's great as this uh, new character because now that Agdashu's left Earth, they need a new character to represent the the Earth political machinations. And now she's this religious leader who used to know the Secretary General. And so she's going to become this voice for reason in this increasingly, like, you know, hawkish earth political climate which i think is gonna be really cool and i like elizabeth mitchell a lot i even liked her when she was on v remember when they remade v Mm -hmm. for two seasons she was great in that just keep her on please renew the expanse i think that's it for us yeah agreed all right well thank you so much for listening thank you to caroline and kate for being here you can find us on twitter at tv party cos on facebook at facebook.com slash tv party pod and by emailing us at tv party at consequence of sound.net feel free to send questions comments concerns thoughts about uh whether or not jed bartlett is too egocentric whatever you like <laughs> anything anything you want send it to us you can find me on twitter at allison shu and on the podcast debating doctor who and podlander drunkcast and outlander podcast which is exactly what it sounds like you can find me on twitter at alcoholywood and also as the co-host of the podcast alcoholywood which i want to point out real quick is now a full-fledged film website with reviews and interviews and stuff i now have a staff of six Woo! Uh, which is nice <laughs> i'm very excited to boss around my friends you're a regular um, old leo mcgarry i mean <laughs> in more ways than one well but you can also find me as the co-host of the podcast nathan rabin's happy cast which you can find at nathanrabin.com you can find me on twitter i'm at caroline Sita. you can find my writing at the AV Club, where I do a bi-weekly 
every two weeks column about rom-coms. You can and also, it's amazing. Oh, thank you. It is amazing. You can also find my writing on the Consequence of Sound website now, yes. as of recently. Where so. she just joined the film I staff. Know. Part of the Caroline has two film reviews. I'm feeling like and a, the second a one was Donna for Moss I feel driving pretty. into the world. <laughs> yes. Um, but going back to TV, you do you did also publish a really great piece on Supergirl that aired on Consequence yeah. of Sound. Love that. Love that. Uh, Cara Danvers. Um, you can find me over at the Televerse podcast. You can find me on Twitter at the Televerse. And I, if you are one of the RuPaul fans, uh, I did review this last week's episode of RuPaul's Drag Race over at AP Club, so you can check that out there. And uh, uh, you can find some writing over at Consequence Sound as well, which is always fun. Yay. Beautiful. Uh, you can leave us a review uh, at on iTunes or, or whatever your podcast platform may be. TV Party is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Chicago, Illinois, and recorded and engineered by upstanding citizen Clint Worthington. Watch this. Thanks to... <laughs> Thanks to Kate and Caroline for being here. Thanks to Kirsten Nelson for taking the time. Yes. And thank you to you for listening. Goodbye. Why? What's Bye. next? <laughs> <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network.